Hi listeners, this is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where each week we have an unusually in-depth conversation about one of the world's most pressing problems and how you can use your career to solve it. I'm Rob Wiblin, Director of Research at 80,000 Hours. This conversation with world-famous computer security expert Bruce Schneier is uh, one of my favorites, and I think will be of interest to almost all of you out there. Bruce is a bold and opinionated uh, commentator online, uh, and as I hoped, he brought that spirit to our interview as well. I disagreed with quite a few of the things that he said, but I think that just makes the interview more informative. Before that, though, a few quick notices. First of all, uh, sorry we haven't had more episodes for you the last few months. Uh, The good news, though, is that I've had a busy October, and we now have about 23 hours of recorded material working their way out to you. At the end of this interview with Bruce, I give a few suggestions for how you can improve your own personal computer security, so stick around for that at the end. Also, it's been a while since I've suggested other podcasts that you might like to subscribe to, so here's two of them. The first is Reply All, which brands itself as a show about the internet, but actually investigates uh, all manner of things. I don't imagine it will actually help you have more social impact, uh, but I do find it extremely entertaining. If you want an episode to start with, try number 104, The Case of the Phantom Caller. The solution to the mystery in that one is uh, certainly one that I never would have guessed and didn't at the beginning of the episode. The second show is called Probable Causation, uh, which is a podcast about the economics of crime, hosted by criminologist Jennifer Doliak. If you love diving into the details of social science research, I don't know any other show that works through papers in such a sophisticated manner and pays uh, great attention to whether people are using correct social science research methodology. For the uh, aspiring academics out there, I think that show is definitely worth checking out. All right, back to the episode with Bruce Schneier. I only got two hours with Bruce, so we've stuck a quick 13-minute presentation he gave, uh, actually the same day, uh, called Why Technologists Need to Get Involved in Public Policy at Codex's World Top 50 Innovators event. In it, he explains what it is to be a so-called public interest technologist and why it might be a way to have a particularly large social impact. That's then the first topic we cover in our interview. It's a good talk and uh, pretty snappy in my opinion, but of course you're welcome to skip forward 13 minutes if you'd rather just hear me and Bruce together. All right, without further ado, here's Bruce Schneier. So in my field of cybersecurity, government access to encrypted information has been a 25-year debate. On the one side, police claim that they're going dark and need access to phones and chats to solve crimes. On the other side, security experts say it's impossible to provide that access without also making the systems fundamentally insecure for everybody. And that's where the debate is stalled. There's a lot of technology that can be brought to bear on this problem, technology of of security and of surveillance. Uh, There are real policy questions surrounding these technologies. There's a security benefit of having data available to law enforcement, even though it might be available to others. There's a security benefit of having data secure from everybody even though that also makes it unavailable to law enforcement. The question is, which is more important? To what degree? The underpinnings of surveillance capitalism matter here, how companies are already spying on users. There are questions about consumer acceptance and international alternatives, how other countries will use these same access technologies for more authoritarian purposes. But here's the problem. Almost no policymakers are discussing this issue from a technologically informed perspective. Going dark is a scare term. So 60 years ago, the British scientist C.P. Snow wrote an essay called The Two Cultures. In it, he lamented the lack of a dialogue between what he called the scientific technical and the humanist traditions. He bemoaned that neither culture understood each other. It was like they were living in two separate worlds. 
we still have two separate worlds. The world of the technologist, who build cool tools without regards to how they upend society, and the world of policy and humanity that criticizes technology, proposes solutions without truly understanding the technologies. Now, that might have been okay in 1959. For the most part, technology and policy didn't interact with each other. But today, it's a different story. Technology is deeply intertwined with society. It's literally creating our world. And it's no longer sustainable for technology and policy to be in two different worlds. So in this short talk, I'm making the case for public interest technologists. But first, let's talk about how we got here. Now, the internet was never designed with any public policy in mind. In those early days, two things were true. It wasn't used for anything important ever. And you had to be a researcher to get access to it in the first place. You had an American-centric, male-dominated, profit-motivated IT industry. Didn't spend a lot of time thinking about the social effects of what they were doing. Software is deliberately excluded from normal product uh, liability laws. Policymakers didn't want to slow down this important and very profitable industry. Silicon Valley had a libertarian ethics, and there were real government fears of stifling innovation. But internet tech is different than 1960s tech. It's more ubiquitous, it's more distributed, it's more commercial, it moves faster. And internet technology is embedded in almost every aspect of our lives. It's become both intimate and vital without any planning or forethought. So pretty much every form of communication, objects, the Internet of Things, critical infrastructure, and automation, autonomy, and physical agency make all this more urgent. Think about AI and machine learning or robotics. And technology has become de facto policy. Companies have effective control over free speech and censorship regardless of what the laws are. Companies can set limitations on personal freedoms regardless of what the laws are. So now we hear terms like algorithmic discrimination, the digital divide, information attacks on democracy, surveillance capitalism. And this all means that internet policy is no longer a separate thing. It's part of consumer policy. It's part of automobile policy, airplane policy, medical device policy. It affects discrimination and equal protection. It affects fairness, liberty, power, democracy. It's part of national security. It's part of everything. The technology is remaking the world. And we will never get the policy right if policymakers get the technology wrong. And we've had lots of examples of policymakers getting it wrong. Net neutrality, copyright debate, cybersecurity, algorithmic discrimination. Meanwhile, policy is forever trying to catch up to technology. So fixing this has two parts. One, policymakers need to understand tech. What we want is for all policy discussions to be informed by the relevant technologies. And when I think about how this should work, I think about Star Trek. Captain Picard would get all his officers together in the conference room, and they would all speak science at him. And Picard didn't ignore the science or discount it or demand a different answer. He would accept what the technologists told him and craft policy that took it all into account. The reality is that policymakers ignore technology if it doesn't conform to their politics. Maybe they don't know enough to do anything useful. Maybe they're still afraid of stifling innovation. And lobbyists are more than happy to provide pseudoscience to match any policy. 
If you watch the Facebook hearings in the United States, you saw policymakers with no idea how to regulate technology. We don't need policymakers to all be technologists. We need them to know, understand enough tech to know how to ask questions and learn from the answers. Enough tech to have good bullshit detectors. Enough tech to believe the truth in technology. Some of them need to be actual technologists in the area they're acting policy in and hopefully have technologists on their staffs, kind of just like any other aspect of our complex modern world. The second part is we need more technologists to get involved in policy. We need more public interest technologists. All right, so I need to stop and define that term. The Ford Foundation defined it as technology practitioners who focus on social justice, the common good, and or the public interest. Tim Berners-Lee called them philosophical engineers. I think of public interest technologists as people who combine their technological expertise with a public interest focus by working on tech policy, by working on a tech project with a public benefit, by working on tech inside government, or maybe by working at a more traditional institution as a technologist there. Right, maybe not, it's not the best term, but it's a very wide tent. We need to encompass all of it. We need public interest technologists to get involved in policy debates, and we need it now. One report I read called this a pivotal moment, and that report described three places for intervention. The first is the supply side. I think this is our biggest problem. There just aren't enough technologists. There aren't enough people who want to do this. Public interest technologists are a diverse and multidisciplinary group of people. Their backgrounds come from tech, from policy, from law. You don't need a computer science degree to be a public interest technologist. We need a variety of ways people can engage in this space. We need more jobs in public interest tech. We need ways that people can do this on the side or for a couple of years between more conventional tech jobs. We need public interest tech as part of every core computer science curriculum. We need clinics at universities so students can get a taste of public interest tech work. And we need companies to give people sabbaticals to do this and then value their expertise and experience when they return. We also need to foster diversity within public interest tech. The populations that are using the tech must be represented in the groups that shape the tech. Second place for intervention is the demand side. And actually, this is our most immediate problem. As bad as the supply is, there are even fewer places for people who want to do this work to go. So we need jobs funded across a wide variety of organizations. We need staff positions across government, executive, legislative, judiciary. We need more press organizations to do this kind of data-driven work. We also need companies to recognize that public interest technologists belong on their development teams. Third place of intervention is the market ways for the supply and demand to meet each other. Job boards, conferences, skill exchanges, ways to connect. Now, it's not that we don't have examples of all of this, both people and organizations. And I don't want to minimize the contributions over the years, but they're all exceptional and they're all exceptions. We need to scale public interest tech. We need more than a few stars or a few organizations. Today, there aren't enough people doing it, and there are enough people who know it needs to be done. What we need to do is build a world where there's a viable career path for public interest technologists. So there's an interesting parallel to public interest law. In the 1970s, there was no such thing as public interest law. 
The field was deliberately created, funded by organizations like the Ford Foundation. They funded legal aid clinics at universities so students would get a taste of housing law or discrimination law or immigration law. They funded fellowships at organizations like the ACLU and the NAACP. They created a world where public interest law is valued, where every partner at a major law firm is expected to have done some public interest work. And today, when the ACLU advertises a position for a staff attorney, paying between one-third and one-tenth of a normal corporate salary, they get hundreds of applications. Today, 20% of Harvard Law School graduates go into public interest law. And the school has soul-searching seminars because that percentage is so low. The number of Harvard computer science grads going into public interest work is basically zero. More generally, technologists need to understand the policy ramifications of their work. There's a perverse myth in Silicon Valley that technology is neutral. It's not, but it's a widely held truth. And historically, programmers have been given an inherent right to code the world as they saw fit. Because historically, it didn't matter. Technology consisted of tools. But now it does matter, and that privilege needs to end. Technology is deeply embedded in society, and the work technologists do affect the world we live in in a very human way. Technology is social, it's political, it's economic. It's a complex system that's bigger than any one academic discipline. Now, big changes are coming. Artificial intelligence, 5G communications, Internet of Things, big data. The next disruption in Internet technology will be about things and not people. And we can build these systems to prioritize different aspects of society. Corporate profits, individual autonomy, privacy, government control, human rights. All these things are possible. The question is, what future will we collectively build? We need to all do this together, not just technologists, not just the traditional male American technologists. We need all different voices and all different expertise because we're all in this together. Technologists need to realize that when they're building a platform, they're also building a world. And policymakers need to realize that technologists are capable of building a world. So in his book, Future Politics, uh, barrister Jamie Susskind wrote that the defining political question of the 20th century was this, how much of our lives should be governed by the state and how much by the market? It's a question we're still answering. The defining political question of the first half of the 21st century is different. How much of our lives should be governed by technology and under what terms. In the last century, we needed economists involved in policy. In this century, we also need technologists, because this is where the core issues of society lie. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, it never was okay for technology to be separate from policy. It's just that today, the separation is much more dangerous. We need technologists in all aspects of public interest work, informing policy, creating tools, building the future. We need people who can speak tech to power, and we need them now. Today, I'm speaking with Bruce Schneier. Bruce is a cryptographer, computer security professional, privacy specialist, and writer based at the Berkman Center for Internet and Society at Harvard Law School. He's one of the world's most widely read commentators on security issues, as a columnist at The Guardian and his blog, Schneier on Security. 
He's the author of a lot of books on security and the impact of technology, including Liars and Outliers, Enabling the Trust that Society Needs to Thrive, Data and Goliath, The Hidden Battles to Collect Your Data and Control Your World, and most recently, Click Here to Kill Everybody, Security and Survival in a Hyperconnected World. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Bruce. Oh, thank you for having me. So there's three key things I'm hoping to talk about today. Firstly, uh, the most pressing issues in cryptography and information security, and how listeners might be able to use their careers to address them. Then, how a career in information security might possibly be very useful for reducing global catastrophic risks. And finally, uh, how we might be able to use surveillance to make the world safer without increasing the risk of recreating the Stasi and a kind of a a lot of authoritarian backsliding. But first, uh, the question I always ask is, what are you working on at the moment, and why do you think it's very important work? These days, I'm thinking a lot about technology and public policy that a lot of our tech issues are deeply embedded in society and people. And a lot of our policy issues are deeply embedded in tech. And there's too much talking past each other in technologists and policymakers or uh, humanities people. And, and we, need, we need better conversations. We need more interdisciplinary people. And I've been trying to think about how Tech people can get more involved in policy and trying to sort of make the world safer for that. And I, that's really what I've been thinking about now because it feels like this is important. And, and we see it in, in flavors of things. We see it in Facebook and democracy. We see it in driverless car policy. We see it in surveillance policy, future of work. Sort of again and again, tech is reshaping society and society doesn't understand tech. And, and that's just not going to end well. Yeah, so there seems to have been an, kind of an explosion of interest in, uh, yeah, well, p- at least policy and in technology. How do you think uh, things are going? It seems to me like it's been a bit of a train wreck, and policymakers mostly don't know what they're talking about. It's kind of been a mess, you know. In the United States, uh, Mark Zuckerberg uh, came to Congress, and there was a hearing, and a senator asked him on national television at a hearing, "How does Facebook make money?" Now, on the one hand, you can laugh at the sort of ridiculousness of asking that question. But not only did he ask it, he didn't think he would be mocked for asking it. I mean, that, that sort of shows a really deep not getting it in technology. Now, then, then that's an extreme case, but I think it's largely been, been not good. And, and it's certainly in the news, I think, because of the United States election, Brexit, all those examples of sort of democracy going sideways because of social media, either organically because of the way ideas spread or from uh, influence either by foreign or domestic actors. And that sort of brought these problems to a fore, but they feel much deeper and much more important. I've been thinking about this for a while and sort of nice that other people are too. Not convinced they're closer at solving it though. Okay. So your talk about public interest uh, technology uh, made me wonder, how large a role do you think there is for philanthropists in creating demand for people to work on these problems? Because it sounded like there were kind of potentially already more people looking for work in this area than there were actually uh, positions available. Although, uh, of course, that, I mean, that, that, that balance might, might all shift in future. Um, and listeners aren't only looking for places to work, although a lot of them are. Uh, there, there's many others who are, uh, you know, have money that they've earned that they're now looking to, to give away uh, in some high-impact way. And maybe they should be giving to organizations that can hire people uh, to do exactly this kind of uh, public interest uh, technologist uh, advocacy. Uh, what do you think? And I, I think that's 100% right. And, and the story I gave about the Ford Foundation and public interest law is, is really relevant here. And, and organizations like Ford and MacArthur and Hewitt are funding public interest tech. There's the Public Interest Tech University Network, which is right now 21 universities, almost all in the United States right now, that are going to have public interest tech programs. And Ford Foundation is funding this. 
So it could be staff positions at organizations that you already support. It could be staff positions at new organizations. It could be courses and programs at universities and law clinics. It could be more positions at your favorite public interest tech organization that already exists. It could be funding uh, tech-driven journalism. I mean, all of these things are being funded right now, just not enough and not, not to the degree we need. So, uh, you know, if you are a funder, actually, if you're interested in the space at all, there's a really good report by Friedman Consulting written for Ford and MacArthur. It's called A Pivotal Moment. You can Google for that, but it'll probably be attached to this podcast. And that lists something like 40 different places of intervention where we can effectively deploy resources to, to move this, this field along. And anyone can feel free to contact me if they are looking to, uh, for places to, uh, to deploy financial resources because I, I have a list of things I think should be funded. Yeah. Electronic Frontiers Foundation on the list? I mean, certainly. I mean, I think they are one of the most effective public okay. interest tech organizations in the world right now. And, but there are lots of others, you know, and, and I think we really very much need a broad array of organizations and not just one. And, you know, I, I, I should say that I'm on the board of EFF. So, I, you know, I mean, I'm happy for people to support EFF, but we can't support one to the exclusion of all the others. It's really important that lots of organizations engage in this space. Because really, if you don't understand algorithmic discrimination, you don't understand 21st century discrimination. So if you're working in anti-discrimination, you better have a technologist because that's what it's going to look like in this century. Are there any groups that you think aren't being recognized for, for, for the great work that they're doing in this area? No, they probably are. None come, none come to mind right now. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I maintain a, a website, uh, publicinteresttech.com with hyphens between the words. And I list all of the public interest tech organizations and university programs and everything I could think of you know, in this space. People writing about it, speaking about it, doing government programs. So, you know, you look there to see sort of what's going on. And if any uh, listener has something in mind that's not on that document, please email me and I will add it to that document. It's meant to really meant to be a living document from this space. Fantastic. Yeah, we'll stick up a link to, to all of those things. What are, what are maybe the downsides of going into, into public interest technology? I guess it sounds like one of them is just you got to kind of have to beat your own path a little bit because there's not a, not a clear track where, you know, thousands of people have gone down this already and shown you the way. I mean, right now it's not a viable career path. I mean, and there are there are actually lots of people doing this right now, and and I don't want to minimize their uh, their efforts, but you know they're all unique. I mean, they're all remarkable in in that they have found their own path. Now, right now, there is less money. I mean, just like you know, doing any kind of public interest work in any field, you're just not going to make the same amount of money you would in in the corporate world. So so that's a downside. Now, so that's probably the two. And it's not a well-worn career path, and it's less lucrative than uh, you would make otherwise. What What are some benefits of it you think people don't appreciate? I mean, it seems like you might be able to get a lot of attention because these issues are, issues are so hot right now, and there's not so many people who are who are doing an advocacy. Yeah, I, I suppose it, that their you know fame fame is is potential, but you know I really want this to be something that becomes so pedestrian that doing it doesn't make you famous. Man, and and again, the public interest law analogy. Is is great. I mean, yes, there are some famous public interest lawyers, but the majority of them are defending a particular person who's facing eviction, a particular person who's facing discrimination or being kicked out of the country. And and this kind of in the trenches work is public interest law. It's not the stuff that gets you in the newspaper, but the stuff that makes a difference. You know, we don't have that in, in tech. 
But, you know, who's doing IT security for Human Rights Watch or Greenpeace or Amnesty International? And those are public interest technologists that are doing a very important job. And, you know, they're not getting a, they're not getting world credit for it. And, you know, you have to know that doing it is enough. All right. So, so let's jump forward and dive straight into kind of uh, your views on what are the most consequential yeah, computer security problems that exist in the world today and what might be done about them. So, so at 80,000 hours, we kind of quantify the scale of problems that we try to quantify it in terms of how many people are affected by a problem and, and how severely they're affected by it. And we also have this particular focus on catastrophic risks, like risks that are, that are sufficiently big that they could, it wouldn't just be easy to pick up and fix them and then muddle through and then, uh, then come out the other side or right. Kind of problems that are so severe, like a global power war. That, that, that feels like a, a flawed math. Your number of people times severity. What about likelihood? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So likelihood uh, matters as well, completely. Okay, uh, good. Yeah. Because, because otherwise, otherwise it's a zombie apocalypse. Yeah, right? yeah. And we're done. Yeah, sorry, dude. Right. So, so it's expected value. So it's, yeah, likelihood times by the number of people times by how, how, how much it affects them. And I guess, yeah, and the reason to focus on the catastrophic risks is that, or the ones that you can't just recover from and fix things up, patch it, and then move on, is that it can affect like future generations as well as the current generation. Are you with me? Someone? I'm yeah. with you. Okay, great. So yeah, in, in light of that, uh, what, what threats do you think are kind of particularly serious or, or perhaps underestimated uh, these, these days? You know, I think less about the far future because in cybersecurity, the near future is kind of bad enough. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't need, you know, killer robots to make things scary. I think just regular cars that connect to the internet are kind of scary enough. Yeah. So a lot of times we focus on the near-term risks because that's that's the problems we have, knowing that any solutions, ideas, technologies we develop will also help with the, the, the catastrophic risks. In computer security, the risks tend to be the way computers fail. Right? They fail differently than normal things. So we're moving into a world where everything's becoming a computer, that your refrigerator is a computer that keeps things cold, and your microwave oven is a computer that makes things hot, and your phone is actually a computer that happens to make phone calls. And as things become computers, the way computers fail becomes everything. So Normal things fail kind of randomly. When you think of cars, cars have parts. Parts have mean time between failures, and they fail regularly. And in everybody's city and town, there is this system of car repair shops that handle the steady state of cars that break. Uh, computers don't fail that way. Computers all work perfectly until one day when none of them do. And that kind of catastrophic break, suddenly all of Microsoft Windows has a, a new vulnerability or all of TCP IP and the internet, in that kind of way of failing is, is unique. So, you know, we're having this interview in a hotel. The hotel room has a keyless entry system. So for, for the listeners, if you stay at a hotel, you've probably seen this. It's a, it's a card. You wave it in front of a reader and the door opens. It's, it's a wireless uh, key entry system. That is, several companies make that. One of them is called Amity. Amity is a company that makes these keyless locks for hotels. A few years ago, someone found a vulnerability in Amity door locks, rendering every single hotel room with this lock around the world insecure. Now, this hotel, any hotel, has a mechanism to deal with broken locks. They probably have a locksmith on call, and every what? Every once or twice a month, a lock is broken. They call the locksmith to, to, to fix it. The hotels don't have any way to deal with Every one of our locks is broken. And the way you fixed it, because, you know, it wasn't a very well-designed thing, is you had to go to every lock manually 
and update the firmware. And it wasn't easy. It wasn't like you get an update on your phone. So here we are a few years later, and a lot of those hotel room doors are still insecure because it was just too hard to fix. Hmm. So that is a real risk I worry about in computer security. As computers become everything, computer failure modes go to places where they're not expected. So we're actually worried about crashing all the cars. I mean, or, or more realistically, all the cars of one make and one model year. But still, a lot of vehicles all at once in a way that just isn't possible with non-computer systems. Yeah. So, yeah. So in the past, you had a situation where like 1% of cars would break down every month. But I guess here you're worried that because they're also similar, you get it's, it becomes almost like you could have a disease that infects billions of people. You can also have you know one failure that infects like all of the computers in the world or like a large fraction of the computers in the world. And the public and health- a much worse situation that's a lot harder to recover from. And the public health model is actually a really good one. Yeah. I mean, we talk about computer viruses mm. and we talk about, you know, getting inoculated from them. We, we use public health and computer security all the time because they do look like that on occasion. And we really do worry about ransomware against cars and DDoS attacks against your refrigerator and your thermostat sending spam. I mean, these are actually <laughs> things we're concerned about because these things are all now computers. Yeah. So I was trying to anticipate what, what, what answers you might give to this question. And I, I was kind of expecting this one, but, but, but how, how bad do you think it can realistically get? Is, is there any scenario in which, you know, just most of the systems that, you know, most of the people in the world are using, like, all go down, like, within reasonably quick succession? Is that possible in some kind of cyber war that, that gets a bit out of hand or a particularly competent terrorist group? Is, is there any scenario where that's, where that's possible to envisage? Yeah, you know, I'm not going to probably give an answer you like because, of course, it's possible. Anything's possible. A bunch of years ago, I coined the term movie plot threat. And this is something done a lot in cybersecurity. What's the worst that can happen? Give me the scenario. Is this possible? Of course it's possible. But if we focus on the worst case, the movie plots, I think we ignore the more common. We ignore what's likely to happen. You know, my field isn't AI threats that are all far in the future and we can sort of sit here calmly and discuss them. Hmm. I have Omni locks that are broken today that have been broken for two years. I mean, I'm worried about ransomware against cars now. I don't I don't need to think about what's the worst that can happen, how bad can it get, what are the possibilities. It's it's near term. So I, I tend to duck those the what's the worst, the yeah. hypotheticals. Yes, it's all possible, but I'm not worried about that. I'm yeah. worried about what is happening now, and that's kind of bad enough. Can you imagine worrying about it a little bit more? Because as it is, uh, you've got, you know, with, with, the, with the hotel doors that don't work, uh, as long as it's just like one set of her doors or like as long as it's only doors at one point in time, then we can just go around and kind of fix that up, kind of muddle through a bit. I mean, even though it's like, it's all like a very serious design problem now. But if you had like everything go down simultaneously or like too, too many things go down simultaneously, then you kind of have potentially like a more cascading problem or... So it's not only the doors are broken, but the whole system that you use to send someone out to fix the doors is also broken and kind of the electricity grid is down and that kind of thing. And, and that's bad. But yeah. honestly, that's beyond my ability to fix. I mean, yeah. certainly as everything becomes critically attached to the internet, the internet becomes more critical. And, you know, that's kind of obvious. But as soon as those things start happening, it's no longer a computer security problem, right? It, it, it's, a way, it's a way bigger problem. But if you think about it, as these things become more functional. Think of uh, autonomy, automation, physical agency. As these things stop being computers and phones and start being cars and medical devices, and you mentioned the power grid 
And things that affect life and property, if they go down, if they get hacked, if they get taken over, certainly the risks are greater. I mean, my latest book, I did title Click Here to Kill Everybody. I mean, to really bring that home. So what's changing, it's really interesting, is not the computers, right? The risks are exactly the same. What's changing is what the computers are attached to and what they can do. And so on the one hand, your spreadsheet crashes and you lose your data. On the other hand, your embedded pacemaker crashes and you lose your life. But it could be the exact same CPU and operating system and application software and vulnerability and attack tool. It's the same thing, but because of where the computer is and what it's doing, the risks are much greater. So that's what's changing. Computers aren't staying the same, but they're moving into areas where they touch life and property in a very real way. Given how much computers are getting embedded in everything, it's kind of surprising that more damage hasn't been done because they're just, it seems like they're very easy to hack and they, and they fail all the time. But it's, it's kind of hard to find that many cases where people have died because of this. And this is interesting. And, and this tells us, I mean, just like terrorism, right? I mean, we know our security is so bad, yet it hardly ever happens. It kind of shows that while in, in theory, this is all possible, in practice, it's kind of harder. You need the right skill set. You need the ability. You need the, the willingness. And those people are rarer than we would expect if we just focus on, on the danger. But yeah, we've managed pretty well. We haven't seen murder through uh, automobile hacking. Even though you can go on YouTube and watch videos of security researchers take over cars remotely and disable the brakes and sort of do all the things you would expect in the movies. Yeah. Well, what do you think is a limiting factor? Is it kind of the interest to do it? Just most people don't care? You know, I think it's a lot of things. I, I think it, it, it's the interest to do it. It's the fact that murder is actually illegal. And, you know, someone's not going to wake up and say, you know, I really think this is interesting. Let's just kill a few people. I mean, that doesn't happen. These are, these are human beings and we actually act moral most of the time. I mean, we do have to worry about the few among us who are going to do, uh, do mischief. And that's a whole point of security, right? It's a, it's a tax on the honest to protect us from the dishonest. But by and large, you know, things work out pretty well most of the time. It, it is surprising, but it's true. You know, you see this in, in traditional computer hacking. It's not the catastrophes that are worried about. It is conventional cybercrime. It's stealing money. It's stealing credit card information. It's identity theft. It's ransomware. I and mean, all those things that are very pedestrian and, and not the catastrophic. Yeah. In terms of the catastrophic stuff, do you worry about the security of nuclear systems, of nuclear weapon systems around the world? You know, somewhat. Those tend to be really old, really archaic, and really offline. I mean, there isn't a web page through which you launch nuclear weapons in, in any country. And, <laughs> yeah. and that's actually a good thing, and, and we like that. Uh, so a little bit, but not really. I mean, nation states are probably doing their level best to get inside each other's weapon systems and to make sure they either don't fire or misfire or point in the wrong direction. And so, you know, again, we could imagine all the movie plots, but you know, individuals, I think, largely are staying away from that because they don't know even know how they work. We have some examples of attacks against uh, the power grid, right? You know, Russia attacked the Ukraine twice and really, and turned off power. And we know that uh, countries have been in the US power grid. Uh, I'm sure the US has been in everybody else's power grid, right? Our only hope is that if really bad things happens, nobody's power will work. So those are worries. There's been some non-nation state hacking, 
in our electrical infrastructure. It's little and it's far between, but it, it does happen. These are things to worry about. I'm not yeah. saying don't worry about them, but uh, in the terms of what I what keeps me up at night, it's not these risks. It really is that there'll be 20% more financial fraud and, and that will be you know, too much for the system to handle. So it's more differences in degrees than differences in kinds, although the differences in kinds matter. But the neat thing about computers is, is once you fix it somewhere, the fix applies everywhere. You improve Microsoft Windows and you're improving things in thousands of different applications, right? from medicine on down to toys. So, so it's kind of, you know, you get good bang for your buck. Yeah, it's interesting way of looking at it. So, so if you make any contribution to, to something that's used in, I guess, billions of devices now, then potentially you, you just, the scale of the impact is very large. You're just going to prevent potentially a lot of, a lot of crime. Or, and, and nation state, everything. So, you know, Apple produces a new iPhone and it's more secure. And not only are we all more secure from fraud and any theft, but all our heads of state are more secure because they use iPhones too as do our nuclear power plant operators, as do our law enforcement officers, as does everybody else. It's infrastructure. So fixing infrastructure just has enormously broad consequences throughout all of our usage cases. Yeah. So sticking with the movie plots for a second, I guess some people I know will worry that if one country gets a reputation or, or is known to be especially good at hacking other countries' nuclear systems and it could destabilize nuclear deterrence, is that something that you've thought about seriously at all or that you know anyone who's analyzed? So I'm not about nuclear, but yes, you know, cyber weapons and cyber capabilities are sort of necessarily secret. And if you think about, I don't know, Iraq and, and weapons of mass destruction and, and chemical weapons, there's a lot of, of searching for chemical weapons plants because they were big and it's hard to hide. But cyber weapons could be a couple of guys in the basement somewhere. You can hide them easily. So not knowing each other's capabilities is destabilizing. I don't think of it in terms of nuclear weapons because I don't need that yeah. to make it destabilizing. Just capabilities to hack infrastructure. And we've been talking about the power grid, but we can talk about communications infrastructure, the financial network. Now, a lot of very critical things need the internet to work. So the ability to affect them in another country is destabilizing because we don't know what they can do. And they don't know what we can do. And, you know, fear and ignorance is how arms races are fueled. So now we have an arms race in cyber capabilities because everyone's scared of everybody else. And that is actually a very real risk. It has been studied extensively and it is destabilizing simply because capabilities are so hard to verify, unlike nuclear weapons, unlike even chemical weapons. Do you worry that kind of provocations in, uh, in, in, in cyberspace or you know, what one country might think is just like a warning shot to another country could accidentally escalate into a, into a more serious conflict? Or even that potentially like non-state actors could pretend to be state actors in order to try to uh, in, engender a conflict between two countries? So there's a lot there. And again, you know, step back from the movie plots and go into what's happening today. In computer security, expertise flows downhill. So today, something is a top secret NSA program. Tomorrow, it's a PhD thesis. The next day, it's a hacker tool. So Unlike nuclear weapons, which are only owned by governments, non-state actors are a really big part of the computer security, cybersecurity ecosystem. And non-state actors with capabilities rivaling state actors is something very worrisome. And there are times there's an attack. I mean, uh, Sony, North Korea attacked Sony, I think it was 2014. In the first couple of months, there was legitimate debate in my community 
But whether that attack was launched by a nuclear power with a $20 billion military budget or a couple of guys in a basement somewhere. And in a sense, that's extraordinary. It shouldn't be possible not to be able to tell the difference. And in computer security, it is. It's very easy to look at an attack and say, well, it could be criminals or it could be the Chinese government. We're not sure. And in fact, we we might know it comes from China, but we don't know if it's state-sponsored, state-sanctioned, or just happens to happen in the same geography as the government. And again, this is very different than the real world. In the real world, the weaponry in a lot of ways determines who the actor is. You know, if I look outside and I see a tank, I would know uh, the government is involved because only governments have tanks. But in, in the computer security, everyone uses the same tactics and the same techniques and the same tools. So that is uh, destabilizing. Yeah. The other thing you asked is whether a cyber attack could be viewed more seriously by one side than the other. That's sort of interesting to watch. It seems like the reverse happens. I mean, Sony is an interesting example, isn't it? Really was an attack against the United States by a foreign power. And we largely said, oh, okay, didn't do many things about it. Russia attacking the US election was an attack by a foreign power. And Obama did very little in retaliation. A Russia attacks the Ukraine, Iran attacks Saudi Arabia. These have all happened. And they've all happened without a lot of retaliation. I think countries are are erring almost in the other direction in, in not responding. It's possible. And this is something more in international relations and cybersecurity. It gets out of my area of expertise, right? How nations view each other. Although we do know that, you know, act of war is not a dictionary definition. Act of war is a thing someone did that you want to use as an excuse to declare war on them. So it becomes an act of war. Now, there are a lot of rules for, you know, kind of what is and isn't in that bucket. But most countries are very flexible in what they view acts of war. Uh, Just last week, uh, France came out with a document of how they view cyber attack and cyber war. And it was very restrained. You know, we do worry about attacks spilling over. We saw when Russia attacked the Ukraine with uh, NotPetya, it affected the rest of the world. When the U.S. and Israel attacked Iran with Stuxnet, it had lesser effects around the world, but did have effects around the world. So these spillover effects are, are common. But again, countries are, are maintaining more restraint than less right now. What happens in the future, we don't know. I mean, this is all rapidly evolving. Listeners, if you haven't uh, read about Stuxnet, I definitely, definitely look that one up. That's, uh, I feel like it's one of the great wonders of the world that Stuxnet actually worked. Um, and it's, 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 it's getting pretty close to a movie plot there, that one. Stuxnet is, and, and, and right, there might be a movie in the works for all I know. And it was. This was a very well-designed cyber weapon that the U.S. and Israel aimed at an Iranian nuclear reactor. And it, it did a lot. It, it actually did delay the Iranian nuclear program. And we know that uh, Obama launched cyber attacks against North Korea that delayed their nuclear program. And so well-targeted, these attacks are effective. Poorly targeted, you know, they're less. Uh, the Russian attacks against the Ukraine were very hit and miss, and, and a lot of people I think successfully argue that it didn't really change anything. But certainly in the event of hostilities, you can easily imagine part of what a country would do to another country would be to disrupt their internal government operations and their power plants and their financial networks. But what we have going for us is that a lot of these systems are very international. It's hard to affect <laughs> one country and not affect the rest of the world. And so 
I think that that will both show restraint by countries that use this and will uh, will mean there's more worldwide condemnation if if these cyber weapons are used just because of the bad the bad targeting. So you think of that with like NotPetya that it was aimed at Ukraine but ended up causing tens of billions of dollars of damage to other countries. Yeah, Net, NotPetya was sloppy. Right? I mean, that really was it, it. It wasn't designed to only hit the Ukraine. You look at Stuxnet, it was really designed to stay in Iran and just that nuclear power plant. And it seems like it was kind of by accident that it got out. Uh, Stuxnet had a uh, self-destruct timer. You know, I mean, mean, self-destruct timers, if you think about it, programmers do not put in self-destruct timers. Lawyers do, right? That is something that was well considered inside the policy discussion in the United States. And it was designed with input from international attorneys that work on the laws of war. And that is kind of amazing. So yeah, moving back to, to, to the Russia thing, it seems like potentially one of the most consequential effects of bad computer security is that it's making it a lot easier for countries to mess with other countries' democracies and kind of in internal conversations. Do, do you think that, do, do, do you agree with that at least? So only part of that, it's not bad computer security. It's the way our systems work today. Hmm. When uh, Cambridge Analytica and Russia messed with the US election, they didn't break any computer security. They were using Facebook as designed. And if, I don't know, Kellogg's did the exact same things, they would have gotten an award for a savvy marketing campaign. It wasn't a misuse of the system. It was a, a use of the system. And I think that's what we're coming to face when we look at these platforms right now, that as designed, they have these side effects. And- it's interesting, as much as I worry about misuse and illegally used to systems, I worry a lot more about the legal uses. I mean, yeah, so I worry about criminals spying on me. I worry a lot more about corporations and governments using the systems as designed for perfectly legal spying. And I think yeah. we all should. We're, we're really not thinking about the effects of these systems as we build them. Yeah, so I guess Cambridge Analytica seems a little bit overblown to me. I'm not sure, not sure whether you agree with this. I- yeah, I mean, I, I think in you know in the details of what they did and their their ideas that they can map people's personalities, that seems like a whole lot of marketing hype. But certainly, the general ways of using networks to deliver propaganda, also known as campaigning, uh, to people to move people to more extreme positions, to uh, galvanize uh, people with extreme positions in, in, into into voting. Those are, I think, well-documented and, and we understand them pr- pretty well, but they are how those systems are designed. And, and rethinking that is not going to be easy because in a lot of ways, those, uh, those attackers are using democracy's openness against ourselves. And solutions that require us to back off from democracy seem like a mistake in the long run. Yeah, definitely. So- uh, yeah, setting aside the Cambridge Analytica side, it, it did seem to me like the, the hacking of the emails uh, by Russia potentially did swing the, the US election in, in 2016. And and you could imagine this becoming more common uh, or there being like more active dis- dis- disinformation campaigns. I mean, it seems like against against Ukraine and against some other countries, Russia has been very effective at encouraging particular conversations that maybe a country would, would rather not focus on. And then they've constantly got bots on both sides of uh, all of the uh, hot button issues in, in the US and other countries trying to just like engender as much internal conflict as is possible. Do you think that this could get significantly worse or maybe have we turned a corner here and we're figuring out how to deal with it? You know, it's hard to know. There's a lot of pieces of that. I mean, certainly the hacking of private information and releasing it is an effective tactic. I think Russia deployed it effectively against the United States, less effectively against France. 
in uh, election a couple of years ago. They had uh, data from Macron's campaign and released that. There wasn't anything that bad in there, right? Or they were, they were kind of stretching any, to it. There wasn't anything that bad in the in the United States data either. Yeah. Uh, in, in all cases, uh, I mean, the press really was complicit in reporting on the information without really reporting on where it came from. And I think we have to get better at that. You know, it's hard to know what tactics will work in the next election. Companies like Facebook and Twitter are much better at pulling down. Uh, fraudulent accounts. And, and they pull them down for, for, for two reasons. Accounts that are fraudulently sourced. So Facebook, you have to say who you are. If you claim you're, uh, I don't know, white American from uh, Missouri, and you're actually you know, someone at a, a troll farm in Vladivostok, if Facebook notices that, they're going to pull your account down. And then also uh, if you, uh, inauthentic behavior. So coordinated actions that they recognize as propaganda. They will, they will pull accounts down for that. And we've seen them pull accounts down most recently uh, from China, engaging in, in Hong Kong propaganda. But also uh, a few months ago, they pulled down a whole lot of accounts by an Israeli company that was offering these services for hire uh, to countries that really couldn't afford to build their old troll fa- own troll farms. And they've pulled down Saudi propaganda against Oman, Russian propaganda against uh, some other countries from Hungary, from Venezuela. Now, what we've learned is that on this planet right now, if you are the victim of this sort of information operation and propaganda campaign, it is most likely your own government doing it. It is That's more likely than in a foreign government. A lot of countries are now using these techniques against their own citizens. So we've gotten better at, at detecting these across the platforms, but tactics have changed. And when you look at some of the operations being pulled down today, they are subtler. They go across different systems. They're not just on Facebook. They might move from Facebook to Twitter, to blogs, into Instagram, and then back to Twitter in ways that make them harder to detect because the companies can't coordinate in, in the way that the attackers can. But I, it, I think we're going to be better at this this time around than we were last time. On the other hand, people worry about deep fakes. Now, I'm less worried about deep fakes. Yeah, I'm not so worried either. I, I feel mean, like people are going to learn that one pretty fast. I, I think as, as soon as deep fakes can be done from your smartphone and every high schooler does it you know, on a joke all the time, we'll get quickly a nerd to its effects. But don't discount the generational issues. One of the things we learned about 2016 United States is that the people most affected by fake news were the baby boomers. So here are people who were brought up with the idea that news meant Walter Cronkite meant accurate. And they moved into a world where news meant anybody with a with a website equals widely inaccurate, all the way to accurate, and you have to be able to figure it out. But they never got that ability to figure it out. Whereas younger people who were brought up in this world of everybody's a journalist were much more savvy. So we can say, you know, the high school kids, deep fakes, they all they all you know know what's going on, but will uh, their grandparents? And I think that's the worry is, is the generational effects. So I am more optimistic. I think there'll be a lot more going on. Uh, there'll also be a lot more uh, active defenses. So 2018, I don't know, it's not widely reported, but one of the reasons there was not a big propaganda campaign is that the United States actually went to the Russian troll farms and shut them down. Really? In the weeks before and weeks after the election. Yes. They hacked them back. And hacked to- them back, right. Oh, wow. and so so they weren't actually doing what they wanted. And they coordinated with the FBI, who coordinated with uh, Facebook and Twitter and others to take down 
all the accounts they noticed probably by going into the attacker's networks getting a list. and getting a list. Yeah. Now, this is not discussed a lot. So we're doing a lot more what we call active defense, which equals attack. And, and that turns out to be powerful. So we will see. It'll be interesting uh, campaign. One of the problems we have here that pretty much everything the Russians did in 2016, if it was done by an American, would be perfectly legal. Fake news, Ned, tends not to be lies. It tends to be stuff that isn't actually news, that is opinion, that are memes, that are just ways to say our side good, their side bad, and aren't illegal. And, I th- and Facebook struggles with this. Facebook struggles with the fact that uh, their, terms, their terms of service are sort of regularly violated, I think Twitter, not Facebook, are regularly violated by the U.S. president. Yeah. And <laughs> how do you make that work? So when campaigning looks more and more like propaganda campaigns, it gets hard to delete propaganda, but also like deleting legitimate campaign messages. So now I've got a real problem. So it sounds like you think that the glass is, is half full on the, on the political side, that we're likely to wisen up, we'll probably respond. I do have to wonder that the people in the, in the troll farm in, in St. Petersburg and when their computer systems are getting shut down, it, that there's something kind of beautiful about the whole game that they're playing here. Right? Even though like what Russia is doing is terrible, there's something that's beautiful about the fact that they can like just have such a large influence with such a small budget and such a small number of people. It's such a clever scheme. It feels like a heist movie kind of thing. And then, and then getting shut down back, it just... I wonder whether they're like, yeah, fair cop. I guess, I guess we deserve that. Or whether they're all just like playing a cat and mouse game that they kind of enjoy it on some level. You know, it is an arms race, but that's, that's what we like about the internet. We want the dissidents. We want the marginalized. We want the uh, disempowered to get a voice. I mean, that's what we like about it. And here it is, these same things being used against us. So we don't want to break what the internet has given us. So, and this is going to be an arms race. This is not static. I'm cautiously optimistic about the next U.S. election, but I think we're going to see tactics that we haven't seen before. I wonder whether it could be useful for someone to create a, uh, a really outrageous deep fake that would be of great interest to 70 or 80-year-olds, get, get someone who, yeah, the older generation are particularly keen on and get them to say something particularly, particularly strange that would, that would attract their attention so they can learn that, that deep fake exists now. And my guess is that's going to happen, that you're going to see all these, uh, these deep fakes and they'll be very, very good and obviously wrong because here it'll be like your cousin speaking Polish fluently. And wow, isn't that amazing? Wait, what happened? And, and that kind of thing, I think, will inoculate people. But one of the things we know about, uh, about lies is that even if we know they're not true, they affect us. So I mean, interesting psychological studies, if we, if we hear a lie enough times, even if we're told it's a lie, kind of the residual ideas are in our head and still affect us. So. You know, this is gonna this is gonna be complicated. It'll be interesting to watch. I just wish it wasn't so important. I guess I mean democracy has been uh, a messy process in the past as well. So it's possible this isn't as much of a difference from the past as it. I mean, people have run disinformation campaigns. There's been like lots of nonsense being promoted. Like people would have incorrect beliefs and promote them all the time. So it's possible that although this will be bad, it will be bad to the same extent that like democracy in the fifties was also extremely problematic. And I think a lot of people say that. And then again, this gets far beyond my expertise in computer security. And, and, and I think that is the optimistic way to look at it, that this has always been a sloppy process. Yeah. So re- recently on, on your blog, uh, you, you tried to draw an analogy between hacking computers and potentially hacking biology uh, in, in the future. Would it kind of ex- explain what you meant by that and what potential damage could be done if, uh, if people in a sense can kind of yeah, hack biological systems? So computers are extraordinarily complex. So the most complex mach- machines mankind has ever built. And we actually don't really have good, we don't have really good engineering and how they work. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be sloppy here. We, we tend to use a lot of trial and error. 
if, uh, if you write software, you know this. You write the program, you run it, it doesn't work. You figure out why, you fix it, you run it, it doesn't work. You do that a whole lot of times, eventually it works. And then with a massive program, you might do that thousands of times. You send it out into the world and it breaks and you patch it and you patch it throughout its lifetime. Right? Software kind of just barely works. And the way we do it is trial and error. Now, that's fine. If you think about that process, the reason you can do that is that the cost of failure is zero. Right? You run your program, it doesn't work, and there's no ill effect. You can just run it again. Now, that's not the way we design buildings. Right? If someone said, okay, we're just going to build this building, and if it collapses, we'll just figure out why and build it again. And if it collapses, we'll just do it again. We'll do that you know, several hundred times, and eventually we'll get a building that stays up. Right? That's, that would be dumb. You wouldn't do that with aircraft. Right? It, and so computers have this sort of unique property that failures are free. And the cost of making changes is free. With a building, you design it, you stare at the design, you over-engineer it, you have other people look at it because it has to be perfect the first time. Right? There's no, no second chance. So let's move to synthetic biology. Synthetic biology has, in the past, looked more like building construction. You know, it's hard to do. The costs of failure are enormous. You, you, you know, you, you, do, you do very small things and you pay very careful attention to the results. We're moving into a world where biology will look a lot more like software with things like CRISPR that can edit genomes and uh, the follow-on technologies that are being, being thought of. You're going to be able to program biological entities. You know, you'll be able to write your genetic code like you can write software. Right? So that will be possible, but you don't have this risk-free failure anymore. And you get the genetic code wrong and you've created a superbug and you've, you've like turned off somebody's spleen. You've, you've sort of done something really crazy and bad. So, and I, so I'm starting to think about, about this risk that we are going to bring a software mentality to this wetware software thing where the, the failure modes are very different. And, and I'm not sure we're thinking about them as carefully as we should. So that was the point of that essay. That's, that's more speculative than I usually get. So it was kind of fun to write. I wrote it with a, with a biologist who actually knows stuff about uh, synthetic biology. So that, that helped. And, and we just wanted to sort of mention, hey, you know, this is a risk worth thinking about. Yeah, well, we'll stick up a, up a link to that, of course. Is, is this kind of just a, a different framing for the concerns that people have had for a while about synthetic biology that it's giving us this power to create viruses or diseases or that, that will then, you know, go into the human body or, or into other organisms and then make changes that could, that could destroy them? It, it isn't, it isn't. I mean, so the worry is someone with evil intent could do that. And, and I'm not even approaching that risk. I mean, that risk is certainly there. And I think we have to, we're going to have to worry about it. And, and I, just, I don't see any way to get around that risk. This is a separate risk. This is people with good intent just getting, you know, version, the, their first version of the attempt wrong. Yeah. Throwing things at the wall, just trying to play around with it and then accidentally creating seriously problematic software, basically. Right. Because the software is biological, it's not limited to your to your computer. Yeah, are there any other like lessons we can take away from that analogy? I suppose well, computer security has generally been bad and is an unsolved problem, and so we maybe would expect biological security to be the same. I mean, some of it is complexity. I'll often say that complexity is the worst enemy of security. I just said a few minutes ago the computer is the most complex machine mankind has ever built. It's actually <laughs> not true. It's the internet, which is sort of all the computers attached together, is the most complex machine mankind has ever built, and. Securing that is very, very difficult. 
because we don't really understand how it works. When you start moving into biology, biology is in that level of complexity. Now, the number of, of genomes in a species, the interactions, the way things work, the interactions between species and in huge biological systems, little changes can have, can have huge effects. So, so yeah, I think we have to really think, really have to think in terms of complexity and our ability to affect biology will, you know, probably in our lifetime approach our ability to affect software. So this is a little bit random, but you've been a bit of a critic of cryptocurrency and, and blockchain technology, kind of suggested in some articles that it's, that it's pretty close to useless or much more useless than most people think. And I, I read a long quote uh, from your article and in my interview with Vitalik Buterin to, to, to see how he'd respond to that. And I guess one of the things that he said was that he thinks that many people who've been critical, actually including me, to be honest, maybe haven't been paying attention to, to the advances that there's been in terms of you know, sharding, which might allow you to scale up and do a lot more transactions or proof of stake, which will mean that, you know, we don't have to use up obscene amounts of electricity just to keep the thing running. And that kind of the critics are right now, but like they might be wrong in five years time. Do you have, do you have any thoughts on that? So those, those things he said really have nothing to do with my criticism. I mean, yes, it is right now. I mean, Bitcoin is the most inefficient consensus algorithm ever invented. And, you know, it's a disaster environmentally and it, it just, the math makes no sense and the scale makes no sense. I mean, yes, of course, that's all fixable. That's all, that's all tech. The problem with blockchain and sort of any of that is the notion that you can replace governance with math is just plain dumb. And you know this is true because even the systems that try to place governance with math have to resort to governance when the math turns out not to work right. Now remember, computer security is hard. Getting this right is impossible. We don't know how to build secure systems. We don't know how to build perfect systems. So you're always going to need governance. And once you need governance, you might as well admit that you need governance and build a system that uses governance instead of pretending that the math will just make it work. So, right, so smart contracts, right? You can just have contracts without attorneys. Of course you can't. Contracts involve human beings. Human beings will have disagreements and they'll have disagreements about what the math says. And nobody's going to enter a contract that says, okay, here's the math, but if there's a typo in this, you've just lost your entire life savings. Or if there's no typo and we learn about a new type of mistake in the next five years, you've lost your life savings. Or if you forget this really important number, I'm going to write down on a piece of paper in front of you, you've lost your life savings. I mean, this is ridiculous and there's no actual benefit toward it. I mean, we can build systems that do things fast. I don't need cryptocurrency for very fast, very cheap exchange of value. Credit cards seem to be doing that just fine and they can do micropayments. So my complaint with blockchain is one, it provides nothing of value that I can't get much easier and gives me an enormous number of risks that I don't actually want. Yeah, I wish, I wish we had time to dive into that, but I think unfortunately we'll, we'll have to move on. What do you think are some of the uh, most uh, kind of widely held but, but incorrect, incorrect beliefs among uh, computer security people? Interesting question. I think computer security people largely have it right. You know, I, I, I tend not to worry about misguided beliefs in computer security people. Maybe the broader community then, including kind of amateurs or people who take a, take a general interest, what, what, what do they misunderstand? I, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about how easy it is. 
Now, and you see this in cryptography. You know, amateurs say, look, I've invented this secure cipher. And, and really sort of thinking, well, that, that's easy. Now, on the one hand, it is easy, but not for you, that, that there's an amount of math required. So I, I often say that anyone can design a system so secure that they themselves can't break it. Right? That's easy. So when someone comes to me and says, look, I've designed a secure system, my first question is, well, who are you? I mean, why is the fact that you can't break this system any evidence that it is actually secure? Now, if you are a really expert system breaker, then your inability to break it is, is really good evidence. If you're just some amateur who uh, you know, read a couple of books or you know, did some stuff and, and don't really understand security, then the fact that you can't break it just tells me that you do not break things very well. Yeah. So, so I, I, mean, I think that kind of disconnect. And in security, we can never really prove anything, any, anything of value. I mean, there are proofs, but they're not really useful in any, in, in any, any uh, real sense. So all we've got is, I can't break this, and all those other really smart people can't either. And that's our evidence that this is secure. So the pedigree of who is doing the analysis is extraordinarily important. And I think that's largely missed in the wider conversation. You'll see companies all the time saying, I designed the secure system, and it's your job to break it. Well, no, it isn't. <laughs> right? It's your job to show me that it's likely to be secure. Otherwise, I got thousands of amateurs saying, break this, break this, break this. And we, we just don't have time for it. So there has to be some bar for presenting a system as secure. And that bar is going to be, it's designed well by people who understand security. Is there anything that you think uh, the experts are getting wrong? I think the experts are pretty good. That's, that's interesting. Okay, well, I guess that's, that's slightly reassuring. I suppose there's, there's I not... guess it is reassuring, right? <laughs> that's, yeah, that's not the case in every Or maybe field. it's just uh, kind of self-evident because I'm one of the experts, so right. I'm getting it wrong too, <laughs> so therefore I don't see it, and you have to get someone else. How, how can someone tell if they kind of have, have the, right, the right mindset to be a good fit for, for computer security? And kind of what, what, what is that mindset? Yeah, I've written about this, and, and the story I always use is Uncle Milton's Ant Farm. So I don't know if uh, listeners will remember this. This was around when I was a kid. I think it might be around today. I suppose we can just Google it. And this is a – it's two pieces of plastic, and they have maybe a quarter inch of space between them, and you fill the space between them with sand. Then you get ants, and you put them in the ant farm, and you watch them dig tunnels, right? Super cool if you're like a 12-year-old boy. Now, when you buy this at a toy store – it doesn't come with ants because, well, because, <laughs> and you can do one of two things. You can get some ants out of your backyard and you know, they don't have a queen, so they're going to die soon, but you know, they, they'll make tunnels. Or you can, at least back when I was a kid, you get out, there'd be a card in the ant farm and you could write your name and address and send it to the company and mail you a tube of ants. Now, the normal person says, oh, that's kind of neat. I can get a tube of ants. Someone who's a hacker looks at this and says, Wow, I can send a tube of ants to anybody I want. And that's how I characterize the mentality needed to be a computer security person, to be a hacker. The ability to look at a system and sort of naturally see how it might be misused. You know, to walk into a store and say, you know, here's how I would shoplift. Not actually do it, but to notice where the cameras are, whether there are alarms, and anyone pays attention, what the shelves look like. And that's true for uh, you know, apps on your phone, and it's true in the real world. And that's way of looking at the world, sort of as a hacker. That's the one thing I think is hard to teach. 
right? I can teach the math. I can teach the engineering, all of that stuff. But that way of looking at the world is something that hackers do naturally and regular people don't. I mean, it's why people who design voting machines never understand the security implications because they're not hackers. They're voting machine designers. Where one of us computer security people looks at that machine and says, well, that's ridiculous. You can't have a paperless voting machine. That's dumb. All these things could happen. What were you thinking? They weren't thinking of it, right? They saw the card and they said, oh, yeah, I can get some ants. They didn't, they didn't say, I can send ants to other people. And that's, I think that's vitally important. How, how big a filter is this? Uh, how many, uh, what, what fraction of the population do you think has this kind of yeah, mindset where they look for the, for the perverse outcome or the thing, what they could get away with? I have no idea. I bet everybody has it when they're kids and it's kind of <laughs> just, you know, schooled out of you, right? You have to be a, a obedient and follow the rules. And, and, and computer security people are never good at following rules. They might do it, but they're just not good at it because rules always seem so arbitrary. I remember once many years ago, I'm at a cryptography conference and talking about some piece of math and some attack. And there was someone from, from the NSA. His name was Brian Snow. And he used to come to cryptography conferences back before any other NSA employee would. Very senior, great guy. I miss him a lot. And someone was talking about this attack. And I said at one point, and I forget why, I said, you know, hey, that's cheating. And Brian Snow looked at me with the look of, what are you talking about? In our field, there is no such thing as cheating, right? All attacks are allowed, are legal, are, it works or it doesn't. right. It works or it doesn't. There is no cheating. And of course he's right. And, you know, I don't know what percentage of people, I mean, that would be sort of interesting to find uh, some psych student who wants to research that. That would be cool. I would help with that. Just quickly, uh, voting machines, electronic voting machines, we should get rid of them, right? It's, it's a disaster waiting to happen. So what we need for voting machines are two things. We need a paper ballot, a voter verifiable paper ballot, and a risk limiting audit. So the first one is uh, the way we vote. And what I like is the way uh, they vote in my home state of Minnesota. It is a paper ballot with ovals you fill in. And then after you fill them in, you feed them into a computerized reader. So you get a very, very quick count. Then the paper falls into a locked box and it's available for recounts. So that gives me the speed of electronic voting with the security of the paper ballot. Touchscreen voting machines, even if they produce paper at the end, there's, there's just too many ways for them to go wrong. So, so I like optical scan voting, but we do need the uh, risk limiting audit at, at the back end. And those are audits that are automatically triggered based on the margin of victory, right? If it's a large margin of victory, yeah, you need a very small audit. The small margin of victory, you need a large audit but not something that one of the candidates uh, demands that it just automatically happens. Those two things do an enormous amount to improve voting security. We don't have anything else that comes close. So yes, we should move to that as soon as possible. That of course isn't the end of election security. That's just one piece of the election. We have to worry about the uh, voting rolls, right? The system that determines who is eligible to vote and where, and those are vulnerable as well. And we saw in the last US election, the Russians did penetrate but not actually attack voting uh, roll systems in like half a dozen states, I, mean, I think more. And, and the belief is now that they weren't trying to dink with the election, but if the wrong person won, there would be credible evidence that there could have been problems, right? So the, it was there so to be able to cast doubt on a result in the, in the future. So the voting rolls, I think, are a big, big issue. And lastly, the tabulation system. 
there was one election, and I forget what the details were, but an operation was disrupted just to call the result wrong. And, and if you think about the chaos that would sow, even if we get the result right eventually, there's so much distrust going on that people aren't going to believe it. Yeah. So how about that for a worst case scenario that the US presidential election is close, but it turns out that just all over the place, that the voting systems in different states have, has been compromised by some other government. I mean, maybe the Russians, maybe someone else. And then this just creates, I mean, I guess it could be a constitutional crisis of a sort because they don't really have a system for, for doing a, for having a do-over election. And that's a real important point. I mean, more basically, you have to understand elections serve two purposes. The first is the obvious one to pick the winner. The second, but equally important, is to convince the loser. To and go to, along with it. Yeah, yeah. To the extent the election fails in that second, it's a failed election. So a lot of these sort of campaigns center around convincing the loser. And if the losing side thinks the election wasn't fair, they're not going to accept the result. There's no legitimacy. There's no legitimacy. And you're right. There is no system in the United States for do-over. So you, you can imagine, I'm going to take this up, that election day happens. And in one state, let's say Florida, you know, a, a state that matters in, in the national election, that in that it's usually close, a lot of electoral votes and, and deciding. There's widespread problems, not fraud, but there's problems. Machines aren't working, long lines, lots of people can't vote. I mean, you can sort of imagine those sorts of, uh, of things statewide. And, and the end of it, Florida says, you know, like we, we, don't, we, we don't know who won. We just don't. This, 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 this is wrong. We know it's wrong. Well, now what does the country do? Right? I mean, the rules are in the United States, according to the Constitution, is that the, the state, state decides, decides yeah. and the state could decide by, you know, I don't know. I think the legislature could, in theory, vote. The legislature yeah. could vote. Uh, I mean, there's been an example, I'm not making this up, of a local election in Texas where the result was a tie, and they decided by playing a hand of poker. <laughs> now, you could do that, but I don't think people are going to stand for At that it. level, no. So, no, we don't have any kind of recovery system. It seems like, I mean, one thing you could do is just like prepare ahead of time for what would you do in this situation so you have some legitimately agreed process. Because in the UK or Australia, I think this would not be nearly so bad because you would just call another election, basically, and the same person remains prime minister until until you get to that point. But, in, but the problem is in the UK, everyone would have a different idea for what they want to do, the thing that would benefit them. And then whenever, whatever gets picked, like half of the country thinks it's a, not a legitimate process to follow. And, it's, it's... and that's an extremely important point. Unlike every other aspect of computer security, this is partisan, right? So. So I can worry about, you know, computer viruses and I can worry about attacks against power plants. There's nobody in favor of the power going down. There's nobody in favor of all the cell phones not working, right? There isn't a constituency for those things. But in an election, as soon as the election happens, there are sides and half of the country wants the result to stand and half the country wants the result overturned. And they will decide on their course of action based on the result, not based on what's right. Unlike other countries, the United States doesn't have a federal bureaucracy for elections. The security we use is that we have people from each party sitting in the same room watching each other. So when you go to vote, there are poll watchers from Republicans and Democrats, and they're sitting at the table, and they're, they're sort of all there for this. If you think about this very mid-1800s threat. And they're great security against this mid-1800s threat of the way election stealing would happen. Yeah. We're all going to watch each other. And if you do anything suspicious, I'm going to notice. And, and that'll keep all of us honest. That doesn't work against 20th first century threats. And 
we are hurt by the fact that we don't have a federal bureaucracy in charge of accuracy in elections. We are both hurt and helped by the Electoral College. Yeah. The fact that it's decentralized makes it a bit trickier to do this. But it, it, Decentralized is both good and bad. So if you want to flip the federal presidential election, where are you going to target? Well, it was 2000. It was Florida. It was 2014. It was Ohio. If it's uh, yeah, whatever, with the, Minnesota, maybe. Yeah. No, the most yeah. recent election. I'm Pennsylvania. Black. It was Pennsylvania and Michigan, right? So the, the states change. But on the other hand, we can be sometimes as secure as our weakest link. And fraud, even if in, in a state that goes heavily one way, will make a difference. And also, there's a lot more than the presidential election. There's a lot of state elections, a lot of local elections. And while you can imagine that Russia versus the United States is at least a fair fight, Russia versus some county in the middle of, of Nebraska like, isn't even a contest. And, and that's what we're expecting. And it's very hard to have federal security solutions for local and state elections because those authorities don't want federal meddling in what they're doing. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I guess, to be honest, thinking about this scenario uh, makes me a little bit more worried about it. It seems like if you're a Russian, you just wanted to mess with the US as much as possible. Maybe this would be a, be a route to go down. But unfortunately, probably probably we should move on because we've got, got quite a few other things to discuss. All right. So the, yeah, the thing that prompted me to reach out to you uh, first off was there was two researchers at the Open Philanthropy Project, Claire Zabel and Luke Mohauser, who wrote this uh, really nice article called uh, Information Security Careers for Global Catastrophic Risk Reduction. And obviously, we'll stick up a link to that for people to read. It's, it's, it's pretty brief and keeps a good pace. It's very interesting. But yeah, in, in brief, they make this case that for people who want to uh, improve the world in a really big way, going into computer and information security could be a really promising career. And I'll kind of paint two specific ways that this, that this might be the case that they, that they highlight. The most advanced machine learning methods are obviously just software themselves that they could in principle be stolen and, and used by other people. And at some point, kind of the most advanced ML algorithms could become dangerous or potentially like very, very powerful. And it would be bad if kind of the most reckless actor or the most disreputable actor could kind of steal them from another group and then, and then deploy them prematurely. And so it seems like it would be good if, if the very best AI programs could be kind of kept locked down so they can't be stolen by North Korea or, or, or state enemies or terrorists. But currently, it seems like we just don't have very good methods to do that because kind of all computers are, are basically insecure by design and at least to, to someone who's sufficiently well-resourced and skilled. Then kind of another, another similar angle is that kind of biological weapons today and, and, and in the future could end up being super dangerous and easy to deploy once, once they're invented for someone who's got you know, a couple of million dollars and, and some relevant training. Kind of, uh, yeah, any, any advances there could potentially easily be stolen by, by other states or non-state actors. Probably they, they already are being stolen by, by other states in, in, in most cases, which then kind of uh, promotes uh, proliferation. And so it's possible that today, like if you're someone who wants to prevent misuse of synthetic biology and wants to dream up the worst case scenarios that you could possibly have, basically maybe you just shouldn't do it because drawing up a list like that is actually just a huge information hazard that then there's a pretty high high risk that someone else is going to steal it. And I guess more, more generally, like setting aside those those two specific examples, it does seem like there, there could be opportunities to improve the world by making it easier for particular groups to, to, to keep secrets. I guess maybe you'll disagree with this angle, but some, sometimes there's things that maybe shouldn't shouldn't be published and, and it might be good if, if they were able to hire computer security people who could, who could keep, keep those secrets for them. The problem is not lack of ideas. I used to run a movie plot thread contest yeah. uh, on my blog every April 1st. And the idea was to come up with the, the most scary, impressive computer security, everybody dies, disaster scenario. And I got email from people saying, don't give the terrorists ideas. It's like, are you kidding? Ideas are the easiest thing in the world to get. Execution is hard. So no, I am not worried. That lists of bad things can happen will give people who want to do us harm ideas. They've already got the ideas. We need the ideas 
out in the world so that we can think about them. Please do not, do not promulgate that myth. I think that myth is harmful and dangerous and keeps this stuff secret and and we're all worried that we'll talk about it and the people who have the ideas, which are the bad guys, are the ones who are going to do all the thinking. Okay. What what if you're actually like a world-class synthetic biologist or you work on a kind of biological weapons program in a government and maybe you actually do have ideas that other people haven't haven't thought of uh, and, and maybe you just don't want them to realize, you, you, you know, you're happy to delay them by five or 10 years noticing that this is a thing. So my guess is you delay them from two to three weeks if you're lucky, but almost certainly somebody's written a science fiction story 20 years before with the exact same idea. Ideas are not hard. Ideas are not rare. Don't worry about it. But it seems like, you know, you might be able to have a better idea or a better way of implementing it. And trying to find like the, the thing that's most dangerous that would be most straightforward for, you know, a small group to do. Do you really want to publish that? Because maybe like the concern will be that in the future it'll, get be, it'll become easier for people who aren't that technically capable to, to do some particular things. And then like highlighting those things that, you know, a group of 10 people with like some biological training. I think we can invent a scenario, again, a great movie plot, where <laughs> this idea is so obscure and weird that you wouldn't want to make it public in general. In my world, we call this security by obscurity and we laugh at it, right? You do not want something so fragile as the idea of the thing being what makes you secure. If that's what makes you secure, you are not secure. Because I assure you, somebody in the lab across the street or across the world is almost as good as you and will come up with the idea, if not today, in two weeks or in a month. So you're not going to get enough head start. In, in general, you make these things public so the good guys can think about them. We do not get security through secrecy. That is much too fragile. We get security through actual security. Do you think that there there might be any um, differences between computer security and synthetic biology security here that, that could make it more appealing to, to keep some of the you know, cutting edge uh, risks there? My secret? guess is, is we are going to wish it so, but in the end, it's not going to be. But yeah, it would be great if we just told the good guys, just keep quiet about the whole synthetic biology thing and that you can make a virus. But no, sorry. <laughs> in our experiences, that's yeah. not the way it's going to work. Okay. Anyway, keep right, going yeah, with back, your okay, thing. With, with how I feel, yeah. So, and I guess um, another another reason this is appealing career is that you know even if if those kind of scenarios don't pan out, the biological stuff or, or the AI, it just seems like it's a very hot area where there's lots of other opportunities to have impacts. So, you know, some of some of which we've talked about and we'll talk about talk about later. So basically, yeah. What, what do you make of this argument in in, in general? So there's a lot here. So let, let's, in general, yes, I think computer security is a great way to uh, to improve the world, primarily because it is infrastructure. It doesn't do anything, but it enables everything else to be done. And you think about it, security is kind of a weird thing because nobody actually wants to buy security. What they want is not to have the thing that security prevents. I mean, I don't want a door lock, but I don't want to get burglarized. So the door lock gives me the not getting burglarized. So security is never a thing, but it enables everything else. It's core infrastructure. You think about all of the promise of computers from AI to autonomy and physical agency and all of the things, all the magic, all the technology, we want it to be secure. We want it to not have any bad side effects. And computer security is how we get that. So without computer security, nothing's going to work. With it, everything will work. So it's extremely important. Now, when you when you know that article, which, which you summarized quite nicely, talked about how computer security affects the world, talked about AI and catastrophic risks and probably killer robots and biology 
And again, I, I'm less worried about that. My risks are today and my solutions today will carry forward. I'm going to read a few sentences from my latest book, Click Here to Kill Everybody, that talks about that. I am less worried about AI. I regard fear of AI more as a mirror of our own society than as a harbinger of the future. AI and intelligent robotics are the accumulation of several precursor technologies, like machine learning algorithms, automation, and autonomy. The security risks from those precursor technologies are already with us, and they're increasing as the technology has become more powerful and more prevalent. So while I'm worried about intelligent and even driverless cars, most of the risks are already prevalent in internet-connected driver cars. And I'm worried about robot soldiers, most of the risks are already prevalent in autonomous weapon systems. Right, so the risks today are the same risks we're gonna be worried about in those catastrophic futures that article mentions. So the neat thing about computer security it's not that you're going to prevent catastrophe in the future. But you're preventing catastrophe tomorrow. And this isn't theoretical. This is real. I got real problems right now <laughs> that if I don't solve, none of that future stuff's going to work well. So, so come join computer security, not because you're worried about the Terminator, but because you're worried about the iPhone. So I think to, to, this actual point maybe isn't isn't completely central because we, we could still say like is is it very important? Could there be organizations or like, is could there be information in the future that is very important to, to to keep wrapped up? And currently we don't really have good ways of doing that. I guess the, the, the argument would be that you know machine learning algorithms, machine learning systems are going to become more and more powerful in future. They'll be responsible for doing more and more things. And and so them being abused by North Korea or some other organization just becomes in the same way that you could do more with you know the most advanced ML algorithms today than five years ago. You know in in ten or twenty years time. The stakes are probably just increasing over time. And at some point, a difference in degree will be a difference in kind. You know, we don't know where those inflection points are. I mean, and we should worry about difference in degree. But these are still, you know, all these machine learning security worries exist right now. We're worried about adversarial machine learning, worried about model stealing. Yeah. We're worried about algorithms that can't explain themselves or, or have veer off into weird uh, side effects or they embed existing uh, pathologies like discrimination and biases in, based on the data we give them or, or the feedback we give them. I mean, these are all problems right now. And yeah, they're, they're going to be bigger problems when these systems don't just make parole decisions. They make you know, left-right turning decisions billions of times a day in cars. But it's, it, it is in a lot of ways the same thing. So the research today is extraordinarily valuable for the problems today, which will extend to the problems tomorrow. I'm not really worried about AI. I mean, to get there, we have to solve so many problems that, that that's where my focus is. I mean, it's nice that people are thinking about these long-term risks, but I think the near-term risks are, are just as interesting and, and, and even more important. Let's, let's maybe just set, a, set aside uh, the, the AI specifically for a second. So do you think that there is an opportunity to have a big impact as a computer security person by kind of finding the organizations where it's like it's most important to secure that organization or to, to ensure that it can operate without having, you know, the Chinese government steal its information and then going and working there and, and you know, hardening their system so, that, so they can like operate without that fear? So I think that that's definitely true. I, I will often get asked, you know, how do I help? And one of the things I'll say is find an organization you believe in and help them. Yeah, I, mean, I, I don't think we need to optimize here, right? There are so many problems, so many areas in computer security, so many areas in, in sort of ways you can, you're going to help the world. Pick the way that makes you excited to get up in the morning. Right? Don't pick the one that's most optimal. You know, we are literally all in this together and, and someone's going to have to handle all the things you're not handling. So I care less what you're doing as long as you're doing something. 
because we all have to help or this is not going to work at all. So yes, I think finding an organization that that matters to you and helping them uh, operate securely, whether it's secure from a a rival government. I mean, this gets back to Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, uh, secure against cyber criminals, sort of any organization with a budget, uh, secure against hackers, secure against, you know, anything. Yes, that 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 is a way to uh, to do good, definitely. Yes, yeah, so, so maybe take an example of, of, of Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International, or maybe some other other political group where it's easier to it's easy to envisage that right now. I suppose the criticisms people could make is just that it's not possible maybe to harden harden their system sufficiently against an adversary. So if you've got like Amnesty International's targeting the Chinese Communist Party, maybe it's just kind of a futile effort to try to ensure that they can kind of keep keep their secrets or organize without interference because it's just they're always going to lose. So this is this is my field. This is not just Amnesty International, this is everybody. This ranges from, you know, you at home to a small business, to a large multinational corporation, to a government, to a politically minded NGO. Security is never binary. It's not you're secure or insecure. It's what are the threats? What is the uh, adversary and what are they risking? And in my world, attack is easier than defense. And if someone like the NSA wanted into your computer right now, they're in your computer, period, end of sentence. And if they're not, a couple of things might be true. One is it's against their law. You know, you might be a U.S. citizen or a U.S. person or, or whatever reason, or you're not high enough on their priorities list. Right? I mean, it's only so much they can do. There's only so, so many budget. staff hours, yeah. Right. Yeah. So a lot of our goals for any attacker is just to make it so hard that they don't bother. Right? Against most criminals, I just have to be more secure than the average person, right? Because most criminals don't want me. They just want you know some Anyone. account, yeah. right? So so transferring works great. If you're, I don't know, I'm the Chinese government and you're attacking Amnesty International, you know, you've got some budget. And if Amnesty International is weaker than your budget, yep, they're in. If they're stronger, then then they're not. But I guess maybe they have a lot of other. But they have a lot. They have a lot of targets, right? And and so where do you fit? They got to worry about Taiwan. They got to worry about Hong Kong. They got to worry about the U.S. You know, maybe you're so low on the priority list that they're going to get to you. You know, in a few years, maybe because you've done the bare minimum. So there's a lot we can do to increase the work the attacker has to go through, and that is worth doing, even in a world where yes, attack is either than defense. Because there are no absolutes, this is all relative. So, so doing good helps. So, I guess if you're, you know, Google. I mean, at the moment, Google DeepMind publishes basically everything. But in future, they might be wanting to keep their algorithms more secret because they're like either more dangerous or just more commercially sensitive. And they could imagine that they're forecasting that they're very likely to be kind of close to the top of the list for you know something like the Chinese government wanting to wanting to steal like commercially valuable information. For someone who is likely to be kind of close to the top of the list where it's like the things that they're stealing are worth billions and billions of dollars, you know, it, yeah, is it practical to, you know, hire some, hire some really great people and harden your systems against that? Or, or is it maybe we just don't know how, where things will stand in 20 years' time? We don't know where things will stand in 20 years' time at all. Certainly, it is practical to hire people. Google hires a lot of security people, and they have withstood government attacks. In 2011, they were penetrated by the Chinese trying to get information on Taiwanese dissidents, and they've done a lot of hardening since then. They were penetrated by the NSA came out in the Snowden documents, right? Then they've done a lot of work against nation-state attackers, and they consider themselves secure against most nation-state attacks, and they probably are. Now, we don't know the details, but- Really, you think they're secure? I mean, 
I guess they're not secure against legal requests from the US government, but they're secure against hacking, maybe. They're, they're certainly secure against it, which means they follow it, right? I mean, but these are not computer security mm, that's a attacks. Question. That is a legal requirement, which because they are a US corporation, they have to follow and they can choose not to. And and But that is a legal battle, not a, not a security battle, right? And that gets very much in a separate place. And that that's sort of what our laws are and what what they should be. But yes, I think Google is is you know spent a lot of time being secure against against nations. Now, it doesn't mean it's impossible, but again, there are no absolutes here. So there's there's a lot we can do. You know, I, I certainly think that Google will get to the point where a lot of their algorithms will be kept as trade secrets. You know, the 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 obvious one now is uh, is PageRank. You know, the algorithm by which they uh, they rank search, and that is secret. For two reasons: one, because they don't want our rival search engines to use them, and two, because they don't want people to know how to hack, or how, to, how to abuse it, right? Know, how to how game to them, it, right? Yeah. They they don't want optimization companies to figure out how to game the system. You know, so you will probably see AI algorithms in in that same boat. What we see now is that AI systems are all public, but training data and the resulting model tends to be secret. Again, those aren't secrets for long. Right, and what security will come from moving fast, not from having you know the secret pile. You know what is the state of the art today won't be state of the art six months from now, and, and you have to just assume they will get out. And I think the companies do. I guess if you have something that you really want to keep secret, do you, do you largely have to air gap it? I guess I mean the Iranians tried this with their nuclear program, and even that didn't work in that case. So they they had a very uh, very concerted yeah, enemy th- there. This is more complicated than the podcast uh, <laughs> probably can uh, support. Can support you keep something really secret. It depends what it is, right? If, it, if if it's a small thing, you don't write it down. You, or you write it down on paper. You don't put it on the internet. You don't put it on computers. Air gaps are just a very slow interface. We know that uh, air gap systems are broken all the time. Actually, Stuxnet was designed to uh, cross an air gap into the Iranian nuclear power plant. The United States has a air-gapped private classified internet called CyberNet. Actually, there are a few of them. And last time I saw writing, it's a few years old, and probably it's probably still true, that viruses tend to jump that air gap within 24 hours. Yeah. Just because stuff happens. Someone sticks a USB drive. Someone sticks a drive. Yeah. Someone yeah. takes a computer home. You know, st- yeah. stuff happens. I so air gaps but- help, but they are not a panacea. In the Snowden documents, there were any number of programs designed to uh, cross air gaps and, and move data through air gaps. So you know, this this isn't. Something's going to going to solve things. If you want to keep something absolutely secret, there are things you can do, but largely you recognize there are no absolutes. Yeah, interesting. So if you want to become someone who changes the world by, you know, hardening systems that are really valuable to, to, to harden, what's the best way to go about developing those skills? Imagine that here, maybe you're talking to you a know, 25-year-old CS grad who has an interest in, you know, some interest in computer security, but isn't working so, in it yet. So I get the question all the time and they always use the word best. And I tell them not to use the word best because what you want is the career that makes you excited to wake up in the morning. And the last thing you want is to be told this is the best thing <laughs> and you're miserable yeah. where the second best thing would be great. So find what you're excited in. Computer security is a very varied career. There are lots of different things you can do ranging from hardcore math to hacking to policy and and dealing with people and users and, and figure out you know what gets you excited. And do that because you'll do way better for yourself and the world by doing the thing that excites you than doing the thing that might objectively better that doesn't excite you. But but again and again, students always ask it in that way. (laughs) What is the best way? What's my best path? You you know, take a random path, right? Take 
just just wander through the space, do different things, see what's interesting. What what are what are maybe some promising options that, that people could take if they're excited by them? Are there any like courses that are interesting, or is this something you really have to learn by doing it yourself on your own on your own systems, or just get a job and like learn on the on the on the fly? Well, that's possible. We have something called cybersecurity skills gap right now, which basically means there are way more jobs and there are people to fill them at all levels. So yes, there's a lot of of on the job training that goes on where companies hire people with general general skills and give them more specific skills in any aspect of computer security. There are lots of programs. You know, most universities have some computer security, either sub-degree or, uh, or courses. So there's, there's any number of ways to engage. And again, poke around and see what's exciting to you. So I guess, if, yeah, if there's such a shortfall of skills, then it's probably easier to get in on the ground floor right now. And, and shortfall is, is, is even an understatement. I mean, hundreds of thousands of unfilled jobs. And that's just today. And that's just the United States. And worldwide into the future, is going to be many, many more. And, you know, we, we're talking about AI, but we can talk about it here. I mean, this is an area where AI can actually do some good because I think there are some of these jobs that can be usefully computered out. And it's not going to affect the people because they'll just move into the other areas where we really can't be computed out because there's so much more human. But my hope is that we can have computers working alongside humans in, in some of these areas. I mean, a bunch of reasons why this will, I think, make a big difference. Attacks happen at computer speeds. Defense often happens at human speeds. That's kind of not fair. The more defense that can happen at computer speeds, I think the better off we'll be. Some aspects of, of computer security, like vulnerability finding, seem really ripe for uh, mechanization. And you can have machine learning systems find vulnerabilities, which would do an enormous amount of good. Because a lot of our vulnerabilities stem from the fact that there are vulnerabilities in the software. Because we're terrible at writing secure code. We have no idea how to do it. And if computers can find vulnerabilities, well, it benefits the attacker and the defender, of course. But if you think about it, once you have this automatic system, you build it into the compilers and and code generation tools, and suddenly vulnerabilities are a thing of the past. And that's actually possible 5, 10, 20 years. And that would make a huge difference. Yeah, I guess uh, I've heard some people worry that we're going to have a computer security apocalypse, basically, because we'll you know design ML algorithms that can find weaknesses and sort of like find computer bugs and like security weaknesses incredibly quickly. But I guess you're saying, well, maybe in the short run that does look bad because you know potentially like some uh, some with bad intentions will, will get that early on. But in the longer term, that's actually a more generalized solution because if you can just if you can just run these algorithms against every piece of software and then patch all the bugs, then we end up in a better place. Right, and that's where the defender ha- has wins here. Right, the attacker finds a vulnerability because they can do it before it. they release it. Yeah. Right. Right, yeah. right. The defender finds it and fixes it and no longer exists. So, right, you have this very bad intermediate time when the vulnerabilities are found in everything that exists today. And there we go, you're going to see systems that monitor these insecure systems that know those vulnerabilities because they found them too, watches them from being used and sort of, you know, destroys them in the network. Yeah. So you, you'll see solutions like that. But then the, the end game is vulnerabilities are a thing of the past. We could have this podcast 20 years from now and you can ask me, wow, remember 20 years ago when <laughs> software vulnerabilities were a thing? Wasn't that a crazy time? Wow. Wow. It'd be, it's great that we're past that. And, and that's not unreasonable. So I guess maybe this is the highest leverage opportunity if you're someone who like both has expertise in ML and in computer security is trying to figure out how do we make defensive ML algorithms that you know can just in a very general sense go out and like find weaknesses and figure out how to fix them. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really valuable. And then also find weaknesses and unfixable things. So when we talk about the Internet of Things, everything becoming a computer, one of the worries of this is that there'll be a lot of vulnerable things lying around our environment for years and decades. So if you think about your phone, your computer, 
It's as secure as it is for two basic reasons. One, the team of engineers at Microsoft and Apple and Google that designed them securely. And two, those engineers who are constantly writing and pushing patches down to our devices when vulnerabilities are discovered. Now, that ecosystem doesn't exist in low-cost systems like DVRs and home routers and toys. Light bulbs, yeah. Light bulbs, right. (laughs) Toasters. They're designed offshore by third parties. They don't have engineering teams. They often can't be patched. And they're going to be around for decades. So this insecure toaster, 15 years from now, is still making toast and still sending spam or DDoS attacks or whatever because it's horribly insecure. And this is going to be a big problem, right? I mean, our phones and computers, we throw them away after a few years. You think of of a car. Actually, a car is a good example. You buy a car today. It software is two years old. You can drive for 10 years. You sell it. Somebody else buys it. They drive for 10 years. And they sell it. Probably at that point, it's put on a boat sent somewhere in the uh, Southern Hemisphere where somebody else buys it and drives another 10 to 20 years. You find a computer from 1977. You turn it on. Try to make it secure. Try to make it run. We have no idea how to secure 40-year-old consumer software. Both Apple and Microsoft appreciate operating systems after like five to seven years because it's hard to maintain the old stuff. So we're going to need systems that live in our network that kind of monitor all of this old cruft, right? The toy that someone bought in 2020 that was on the internet, now it's 2040 and the thing is still on the internet even though nobody's played with it in a decade and a half because it somehow gets its power remotely. We can make this stuff up. And this is, this is going to be a security nightmare. And we're going to need some new technology to solve it. Now, there are people thinking about this. I mean, I didn't, just didn't make this up again. Ideas are easy, right? <laughs> Everyone thinks of everything all the time. But we really need to start thinking about how to deploy these. I mean, do they go in the routers? Do they go in the backbone? Who's liable? And what are the regulatory mechanisms by which these things work? Yeah, the, I mean, the Internet of Things drives me a little bit crazy. I, I guess someone I've skipped over that because it's, it's covered pretty well in your book and we can, we can link to talks where you've described all the issues there. I mean, is, are there any particularly high impact things that people can do to like, I mean, it seems like we're, we're just heading towards like a worse and worse situation with uh, so many little pieces of hardware being computerized and they're all going to end up insecure eventually, right? And like often not getting patched. Well, I, that- could, I, I could talk about two other things. I, I just talked about patching and so the way patching is going to fail in this world of low cost, embedded, not maintained old systems. So we need to solve that. I think that's a really big problem that we need to figure out. Second thing is authentication. Authentication kind of only ever just barely worked, you know, and we got solutions. We have two-factor, which is great. If you can do it, you often can't. Backup systems we need, and they're often terrible. But authenticating is going to explode in a new way. So right now, if you authenticate, you're doing either one of two things. So you pick up your phone and you, uh, I mean, I have my phone in my hand, then I put my fingerprint on the reader, and then I pushed a button and checked my email. So there's the authentication. It was me authenticating to a device and me authenticating to a remote service. Those are both me authenticating to something else. What we're going to see the rise of is thing-to-thing authentication. So the whole point of 5G is actually not for you to watch Netflix faster. It's so things can talk to things without your intervention. And they're going to have to authenticate. So you think of all of these smart city things or... So imagine a car either driverless car or some kind of driver-assisted car, that car is going to have to authenticate in real time ad hoc to thousands of other cars and road signs and traffic signals and emergency alerts and everything. And we don't know how to do that. We don't know how to authenticate thing to thing at that scale. 
We uh, do it a little bit. I mean, right now, when I go to my car, my phone automatically authenticates to the car and uses the microphone and speakers. And, but if you think about it, that's Bluetooth. That works because I was there to set it up. I set it up manually. That's not going to work ad hoc as I'm driving through the city. That's not going to work if I have 100 different IoT devices at my home, not going to pairwise connect 5,000 connections. So we don't have an answer for that. I think that's an area that we need a lot of good research. The third is supply chain security. And so this is in the news a lot. I mean, right now it's uh, Huawei and 5G. Should we trust Chinese-made networking equipment? Two years ago, the problem was Kaspersky in the US. Should we trust Russian-made antivirus programs? Yeah. Should we trust things that are shipped by USPS? Yeah. So, so and, 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 they, they, and, that, and that's the point, right? I mean, the question, can you trust a company that operates in a country you don't trust is an obvious one, but all computer systems are deeply international. iPhones are American, but they're not made in the US. The chips aren't made in the US. The programmers carry 100 different passports. And you have to trust update mechanisms and distribution mechanisms. And you, missed, you mentioned shipping mechanisms. And you mentioned that because you know of a very famous photograph of uh, NSA employees opening a Cisco router that was destined for the Syrian telephone company. And supply chain is an insurmountably hard problem because we are very international in our industry. And subversion of that supply chain is so easy. I saw a paper, you can hack an iPhone through a malicious replacement screen. So you have to trust every aspect of the supply chain from the chips to the shipping. And we can't. And that's something that I, is, is a very difficult problem. Some of it, I think, is, is, is the, an internet-like problem. I mean, if you think about the internet, the internet, the original design of the internet was a research solution to the problem, can I build a reliable network out of unreliable parts? I'm asking a similar question. Can I build a secure network system infrastructure out of insecure parts? And that, I think, is a research question on par with the internet. Yeah, so I'll, I'll find some, find some links to discuss that. I guess people, people can uh, definitely buy your book if they want to dive in more. I find, I mean, this is my personality, but I find these computer security issues and like, well, yeah, looking at all the vulnerabilities and people fighting us for another, like, endlessly, endlessly fascinating. I guess you, it, it, it sounds like you fun. find this all very entertaining. Yeah. I, you know, <laughs> I, I think it's the best field to be in, too. I'm, I'm not going to deny that. Yeah, yeah, I think I've, I, I took, took a wrong path somewhere and studied economics. Yeah, so I've read this But article. it's very funny. Economics matters a lot. I mean, yeah, my no, security true, yeah. problems actually are much more economic than technical. I have a lot of tech. Yeah. My problem is it's not being used. Mm. My problem is not being deployed. My problem is it's not economically sound for companies to use this tech. You know, we have a conference, WISE, Workshop on Economics and Information Security where economists and techies get together and do research on the economic models that drive computer security. So you think about something like, oh, spam. Spam was a really interesting problem that had an economic solution. So spam was a huge problem. And then we all would have spam checkers and they'd be on our mail servers. And they'd be pretty good and sort of not that great. We really wanted spam checking to be in the backbone but the telcos had no economic incentive to deploy spam checkers at all. There was no, no upside, all downside. And that's where the problem lay, and, and no one ever solved spam. It was solved because the economics of email changed, and now there are only like you know seven email providers on the planet. So they were now big enough to, to tackle spam, that. to internalize right, the problem, and they tackled spam. And now we have now spam is not a problem at all for anybody. Yeah, even if they don't run. Yeah. And that had nothing to do with the tech. Yeah. That was all 
the way the economic models of email shifted around. And we have lots of those. So I welcome economists in computer security. So if you ever decide that podcasting is not as exciting <laughs> as you want it to be, you can come join us. Costs and benefits tend to tend to sneak in everywhere. Yeah, economists kind of colonize everything. So yeah, to psychologists prepare, as well. Yeah, that's I mean, true. Yeah, I mean, social the, science. In the, general. the human interface. You know, a lot of systems we have uh, fail because uh, of the people and the way uh, they the way this tech interfaces with with people. So psychology and sociology are also extraordinarily important in my field right now. You know, what we what we're recognizing is we're not building tech systems. We're building socio-tech systems, mm. and that. Economics, psychology, sociology matter so much because they are core to what we're building. And this is different, right? 20 years ago, we were building tech tools. To now, you design Facebook and economics, sociology, psychology matter just as much as the tech, if not more. And all those groups need to be together in design, implementation, maintenance, upkeep, features, I guess it sounds like you're saying it's a very, very interdisciplinary uh, field. It's going, it's going to have to be. But just sticking on the cybersecurity aspect for a second. Now, to prepare for the interview, I read this article, How to Build a Cybersecurity Career by Daniel Meisler. Have you read that? And if you have, did you like it? Now, are there any other kind of similar guides for people who you know, want to figure out, you know, what, what first steps should I take if, I, if I'm really taken with, with this idea? There are guides, and that's a good guide. I have recommended it to, uh, to students who ask me. But I do tell them that they don't need a guide, that this is not like medicine. Yeah. where there is a defined career path. It's not like law. It's not like accounting. There's just a lot of ways in. There's a lot of ways in, and there are so many aspects to it and different things you can do in such a demand that any way in is fine, that any path is fine, that, and that meandering around is actually beneficial. So I don't want people to be wedded to a guide and follow the guide. I want them to follow their curiosity, and they'll learn more and do better that way. So yeah, it's interesting. So it seems like there's like there's not enough computer security people, and yet it doesn't seem like it's that hard to break in if you know you kind of have the right mentality and you got and you, and you got your head screwed on. So there's just there's so much demand that you can just play around in your basement, like figure out a whole lot of stuff, and then try to go get a job. We 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 harden systems. You can like go to university courses. You can learn this stuff online. Why is it that there still aren't enough people? Given that it's so interesting, and it seems like there's it's, there's not huge barriers to entry. Have you met the world? Everything <laughs> is so interesting. <laughs> okay. There's a lot of competition. There's a lot of competition. Yeah. But it pays so well as well. So does designing video games. Yeah, all right. <laughs> I mean, so does doing everything. Mm. I mean, we are sort of, as a society, we have a lot of choices of cool things to do with our time. And, yeah. and, and there's no shortage. And I think doing computer security is a certain mentality and that it's certain people are drawn to it and other people aren't. People who want to build and create things, you know, you want to go into the stuff that builds and creates. In computer security, we break things, right? We tell you you can't do that. We uh, we hack systems. We we do things a little differently around here, and and only the certain kinds of people like that. I think a lot of people are drawn to the more creative and building aspects of tech, and that's fine. We need that too. There's no computer security. There's nothing to secure. Yeah. So it takes all kinds. Actually, it doesn't take all kinds. We just have all kinds. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I might have the right right mentality for this in some ways because like everywhere, I'm like obsessed with my own security. Just because I think when I'm going around doing stuff, I'm constantly seeing the weaknesses in all the systems that these companies have built. Like I had to, I had to reset my. Well, my, my phone was stolen uh, last week, and I had to reinstall the app on my phone. And I realized that everything that the bank demanded 
was only things that I knew that and things that could be solicited through like a social manipulation. So there was no like objects that I had to have. There was nothing that they couldn't get through a fishing expedition or just like calling up my friends to try to figure out stuff that they might know. And I like I emailed them and I and I called them and was like complaining about that like, their security here was bad. To be honest, they probably might know more about the economics of this than me. That like if they, if this, if this was being exploited very much, then then it probably uh, would the system wouldn't be designed that way. But at the same time, I was like I'm looking at this. I'm like this is a terrible system for resetting someone's phone access to their banking. Oh, it is terrible, and and, and hackers do exploit those. And yes, the uh, banks and other systems don't fix them for really for two reasons. One is the cost of losses is cheaper than the cost of fixing. More importantly, the cost of losses to them is cheaper than fixing it. Because and, it's and a whole you, lot of time for you, if you're, even but, if you can get the money back. But you, Mr. Economist, understand the notion of externalities. Yeah. Right? And, and a bank <clears throat> is not going to fix the problem if someone else has the problem. So, I mean, 1978, in the United States, we passed the Fair Credit Reporting Act. And one of the things it did is it limited liabilities for credit card losses to the individual to $50. And this was a game changer in credit card security. Before that law, credit card companies would basically charge the user for fraud. Your credit card got stolen or lost, and you were stuck with the bill until like the two weeks, until the company could print the new little book with the bad numbers. When Congress, U.S. Congress passed that law, suddenly the credit card companies were absorbing all of the losses. They couldn't pass it to the consumer. And they fixed it very fast. And they fixed, but they did so many things that the consumer could never do. So think of what they did. Real-time verification of card validity, microprinting on the cards, and the hologram to make them less forgeable, shipping the cards and a pin to the user in separate envelopes, Mm -hmm. requiring activation from a phone that was recognized. Now, if you're a user and you're getting those losses, you couldn't implement any of those things. But the credit card company could. They just never did because they never suffered the losses. Give the cost to the group that can do the most to fix the problem is just an obvious approach. So we in computer security try to use that principle again and again and again because we have this tech, but it can't be deployed. It's not being used because the people who can afford the tech aren't seeing the losses. Whenever I look at computer failures, I always try to look at the economic reasons and then see where the see where you can move the liabilities to a place that's consolidated so the solutions can be researched, purchased, deployed, used. I want to talk about ubiquitous surveillance for a minute. So it seems to me like we're, we're slightly stuck between a rock and a hard place here. Maybe you won't agree with it, that there's, there's this trade-off, but there is this risk that in the future we'll be able to design you know, weapons that uh, small groups can use that could kill like potentially billions of people. And it could become necessary in the future that we have like a lot of surveillance in order to monitor that and make sure that people aren't actually going to do that kind of thing or don't have access to that kind of technology. On the other hand, you know, building basically the surveillance state that we have today you know, in, in the US and the UK and Australia, is just like building this infrastructure that could potentially be turned towards like authoritarianism or, or, or totalitarianism. And it's kind of surprising to me that the government just has so much information about us and ability to track us. And yet we haven't seen like that much like backsliding uh, away from democracy. Do you think that this is like a, a big problem potentially, this kind of trade-off between like security versus like uh, p- political political problems? And if so, like what, what might be done about it? So there's a, a bunch to unpack there. It's, this is normally uh, described as security versus privacy. That's wrong. It's, it's really security versus security, right? There is security value in having our systems to be safe from, from hacking, eavesdropping, control, especially as our communication systems and control systems are used by nuclear power plants and elected officials and CEOs. I mean, so just take the debate about the iPhone, right? As long as that iPhone is used by all those people, and every police uh, officer and judge, and you know they, they, they have to be secure. 
At the same time, we want to be able to solve crimes, and there's a security value in eavesdropping. My belief is that while that's a debate today, uh, as if, uh, in the future, that debate will just disappear because the value of, of securing our systems will be so much greater. I mean, you, sure, it'd be fun to eavesdrop on the cars, but if they crash, that's really, really, really bad. So we will choose security over surveillance. Now, uh, this is a trade-off. I mean, right, we will but not- But it seems like we, we have, like surveillance is getting worse and worse. So uh, the, 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 yeah. let, me, let me unpack okay, it. There's sorry, actually sorry, a whole it. lot here. <laughs> so we, the security value of making our systems eavesdrop proof is greater than making them eavesdroppable simply because they are so critical to society. And that will become even more stark when you can control your car from your phone or control your heart monitor from your phone. Now, we already have systems that give governments an extraordinary ability to spy on our private lives. We do that willingly because there is security value in then solving crimes. And the way we do that is we have mechanisms to ensure that the police won't misuse that process. Right? In the US, there's an entire warrant process. Right? The police go to a judge and say, this is what we want to do. Here's the reasons. We won't do more than this. The judge says, okay. And they do it. At the end of it, they inform the, the, the person spied on. There's all these mechanisms. So we know how to do that properly. A lot of the debate is not about surveillance, it's about warrantless surveillance. Right? Surveillance without a warrant. Which, like, I can't, I, I'm always amazed the police think is a good idea. Why don't they want the legal protections to do the, the crime solving? Now, you're talking about something different. You're talking about, again, this sort of more catastrophic system by which there are incredible destructive capabilities that normal people can use. And the conceit you gave in your scenario is that through surveillance, you can prevent them from using them. Which is, of course, ridiculous once you even think about it. I mean, right now in the United States, mass shootings are a huge problem. There is no amount of surveillance that will prevent mass shootings, right? Because guns are plentiful. So the technology is so plentiful that surveillance isn't an issue. And that is the way to think about these future catastrophic risks. Any kind of technological risk will go through phases of ability. Difficulty, yeah. Difficulty, right? So in the beginning, it's like nuclear weapons. Only governments can do it. And then it'll come to the point where people who are highly skilled can do it. And maybe it, it takes a conspiracy. And then it gets to the point where gun massacres today is where like anybody can wake up in the morning and within 30 minutes kill, kill some people. 50 people. And at that, so at that final point, surveillance is useless. Yeah. In the intermediate at, state, maybe. At, at, at that initial point, surveillance is irrelevant. In that intermediate state where it takes a conspiracy and some expertise, surveillance is valuable. But at best, it's going to buy you a few years. So I believe we're going to realize eventually that the security cost of that surveillance state, which is enormous because of all the misuses, not just by you know, our police, but by, by bad actors, is so great that we're going to need some other solution, right? Like the solution to gun violence is like take away the guns. This isn't stupid. There will be more organic solutions to all these catastrophic risks. There has to be. And, and that buying a few years as the expertise flows downhill won't be enough to justify the enormous risks that the surveillance state will entail.
Yeah, uh, the philosopher Nick Bostrom in, in this paper, the fragile world hypothesis, kind of paints out like, w- what if we are in this like very unfortunate world where it turns out that synthetic synthetic biology is like way more dangerous even than we think now, and it's also going to be way easier than we than we imagine. Then surveillance isn't going to help. Then it's not going to help. Okay. Right. I mean, that's right. a problem. I see. Right, yeah. right, right. It, so then we're just screwed no matter what. Yeah, we're screwed no matter yeah. what. Okay. So, so that and that that's my fear. My fear is we're going to reach for surveillance because it's kind of as you painted it. It's sort of obvious if we just watch everybody, they won't do the bad thing. But that isn't true. If it's true, it's only temporary. And if it's temporary, I mean, it's not going to be long enough to make enough of a difference. So I'm, I, I do fear that policymakers will reach for it as a tool, yeah. just as they're really doing today. This is the FBI in the United States is saying, you know, just give us the ability to eavesdrop on conversations and we'll be fine. Really not paying attention to, to the costs of that. And there are a lot of ways to investigate crime that don't involve compromising national security. How much, how much do you worry about the, the political implications of having this level of surveillance and ability to spy on your political adversaries, adversaries potentially? Like, do you think that we are in like a more vulnerable position now than we were 20 years ago, where you know, if you have a, have a really bad leader in a country like the UK who, who wants to reduce democracy in the country, that to some extent they, they have a lot of tools at their disposal. I mean, in the UK, you have like even less legal protections, uh, very few legal protections, it turns out, uh, relative even to the US. Yeah, I, mean, I think it is much more worrisome. And I, and I worry about government surveillance. I worry about corporate surveillance a lot. I mean, the fact that, you know, Google knows what kind of porn everybody likes on this planet is a little creepy. And, and Google knows more about me than my spouse by a lot. And, and this is true for pretty much everybody. Yeah. And that is worrisome. And it's worrisome for misuse. I mean, certainly these databases are vulnerable to attackers and criminals and, you know, the, the various nefarious bad guys, but they're also vulnerable to legal uses. And when you talk about, uh, you know, sliding into tyranny, uh, and Snowden's called it turnkey tyranny, that he just takes a bad leader, the infrastructure is there, and it can be misused. Then you go to a country like China, where the infrastructure is being built for this purpose. And it's not a misuse, it is a design feature. But China's exporting these surveillance control technologies to other countries. Yeah. So if you're a third world wannabe dictator, you can buy at a you know, very reasonable price these technologies from China. And, you know, other countries as well that, that will give you these capabilities. So, yes, I mean, I think we're building a world where dystopia is a lot easier and we really should step back and, and sort of figure out what we're doing. It starts with the corporations, though. Hmm. It starts with the companies that are collecting our data. Because more, more than are, the NSA. I mean, it seems like the NSA also has a lot of information about us. It's like, no, and, and it's taking it from the companies. Like, the, that's yeah, it. Exactly, right. yeah. So, so the companies the collect company. it for like right. what seems like somewhat more innocent commercial purposes, but then basically it's all sitting there in a pile that the government can appropriate and like use for much more nefarious purposes, like whenever they want. It's, it's this like very nasty combination in my it, mind. It is. I mean, the public private surveillance partnership. As much as we talk about NSA surveillance, hmm. they actually do very little actual surveillance. Interesting. They leverage everybody else's surveillance. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and yeah. it's funny, it's not like they walk over the morning and let's said let's spy on everyone on the internet they woke up and said wow you know these corporations are spying on everyone on the internet yeah. let's just get ourselves a copy of it yeah. all and that's what they do and, and in the u.s uh they they do it through legal means national security letters and sort of other ways to get bulk surveillance they do it through illegal means they they do it through uh through hacking through bribery through threat i mean all sorts of mechanisms and other countries don't do it to that extreme yeah. but they do do it right you know china hacked the united states opm database is a database of very sensitive information about U.S. government employees, right? That database was collected for perfectly legal purposes. And mostly sensible ones, too. Right, yeah. mostly sensible ones. Yeah. And China said, you know, I'd love <laughs> a copy all. of that database, right? <laughs> yeah. and, and now that happened. Yeah. And now they just have it forever. And they have it yeah. forever, it's, yes. Yeah. 
I mean, I, I guess I, I see this mostly as uh, an issue that requires maybe lawyers and politicians and public policy people to figure out, like, how come, because we're not going to get rid of surveillance completely. E- even if that was sensible, you'd just never get the bureaucrats and the security and the intelligence people on board with that. But we don't want to um, get rid of surveillance. I mean, yeah, no, I mean, we want to keep, we want to keep a lot right? of significant aspects of it. But the question is, like, what can we do to allow, to, to keep the good aspects of it and, like, get, get the intelligence people on board with a scheme that cannot just be like, where you can't just turn a key and turn a country and, into the star, or like, yeah, recreate the Stasi overnight. Well, I mean, so it's, so it's not have, easy. We have, we have a couple of ideas and we're okay with retail surveillance, right? Suspect of a crime being surveilled after is the suspect. We tend to dislike wholesale surveillance, right? Let's watch the entire city of Baltimore and see what happens. We know about due process. We know about uh, audits. We, we, we know how to do this. We just need to recognize that there's one world, one answer. And what you said, getting policymakers to think about this gets back to where we started, that we need technologists in the room informing this debate. It can't be policymakers thinking about this without understanding the tech. Understanding the tech is critical, and it's how we're going to get these answers. So, so bringing a hacker mindset to this, it, it's not only that we don't want there to be wholesale surveillance, you know, watching everyone and collecting all the data all the time. It's that you don't even want it to be possible for them to do that, because uh, you have to worry, like, what if a bad person gets in control? of these systems, if the capacity is there, then like there's always a risk that they might just like start doing that. And then the ability to, to, to resist becomes becomes challenging. And right. And that's designing systems to be surveillance proven. There's a lot of research in this. And here again, the tech is outstripping the policy. We have tech that builds systems to prevent the kind of wholesale surveillance. We have systems that'll prevent uh, someone from dropping a malicious update on your phone, not everyone else's phone. We have all those things. Right? Getting them used, getting them deployed is often a matter of policy and economics. And it's recognizing that that's important. Do we have a system to, to stop the government from, or like people with cameras to just like watch you everywhere on the street? I mean, we're in London. It's like very hard to be on the street here and not in view of a camera. It's going to be hard to like- But that's you know. going to be policy. I mean, in yeah, a sense- that's, that's we, illegal. But in a sense, we are in a very unique time for cameras. They're everywhere and you can still see them. 20 years ago, they weren't everywhere. In 20 years, you won't be able to see them. Yeah. What about microphones? I mean- <laughs> Same thing, right? Right, yeah. right. The sensors will get so small and so distant that will, they will not be humanly perceptible anymore. And that's going to be something that will be largely policy and not tech, because right? the tech will be there. And yeah. you know whether you know, we see a lot of work, ACLU has done some really interesting work on, on, on what's possible. And it's, it's sort of two things. It, it's these sensors, whether they be cameras or microphones that are increasingly sensitive at a distance and, and can hover longer, see more, see better, see through walls, see, see infrared, learn a lot more, and then AI systems to process that data. Because yeah. right? you know, cameras that watch the entire city are useless if they're human beings watching the cameras. But if there are computers watching the cameras, that'll show the human beings everyone with a red shirt or everyone that matches this character or walks this way or walks yeah. this way or or has been in these five locations on on these five subsequent days that the the ability to automatically process a lot of this data brings a lot of the interpreting the surveillance at machine speeds at scale and, and that kind of uh, surveillance state is very worrisome and there it's going to be more policy I feel a bit despondent about this problem. I guess it seems like I mean who's going to stop the Chinese government from doing this? In, in, no one's going to stop the Chinese government from yeah. doing it to China. Yeah. But honestly Look at the Chinese government's history. There's a lot of things nobody stopped yeah. the Chinese government are doing in China. Yeah. So we are, we are never going to stop countries from doing the bad things in their borders. Yeah. I mean, we and in the rest of the world are becoming more moral with every passing century. And I think that will continue. I mean, I don't think 
these tech developments spell the end of democracy. I just don't. I yeah. think. We're, what, I think. What, we're what, gonna, what gives you hope here? And what, what do you think beings. can be done? Human beings. I mean, we are inherently moral, and it takes us a you know world war or two, but we eventually do the right things. And it's going to be noisy. It's going to be messy, but I, I think we will figure this out. I don't think this will be the end. I'm actually, I'm actually, am optimistic. All right. All your robot it's scenarios a- and, and killer, <laughs> killer stuff. Be damned. So it's, it's not robots. It's ML systems. <laughs> yeah. There's, but it's ML robots are even worse. Yeah. Okay. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> with the zombie apocalypse. I mean, there's so many threads. I, I wish we could have gone down, gone down further here. We're going to have to have a lot more, a lot more episodes about, about computer security. Maybe just one, one final question. We talked a bunch about uh, computer security movie plots. What, what are some actually good movies about, about computer and information security and, and, and hacking and so on? And uh, is, it, is it sneakers? Do you, or do, you, do you like sneakers? I like sneakers. <laughs> I like hackers. I like war games. I like the old ones. Yeah, interesting. What, why are the old ones better? Because they're nostalgic and fun. Cool. Well, it's been a great pleasure having you on. And uh, yeah, I really hope we can get you back at some point in the future. I mean, this issue just seems like it's going to get more and more important. This was grand fun. Thank you. All right, so uh, at the start, I promised you some advice on how to improve your own uh, computer security practices. Uh, So here it is. Uh, The first is that you should always be using two-factor authentication uh, for important accounts like Google, Facebook, uh, Dropbox, Microsoft, your Apple account, and so on. Um, I know you've probably been told this before, but really you absolutely should. If you're only using a password, you are absolutely out of your mind, in my opinion. Uh, now, if the only thing they offer is SMS messages for two-factor uh, verification, then uh, then go ahead and use that. But uh, all of the like almost all of the important services out there uh, offer the option to use a Google Authenticator, uh, the, the Google Authenticator app on your phone, uh, which is uh, which is quite a bit better. And using uh, Universal Second Factor or uh, UTF keys uh, that you keep in your wallet and uh, plug into your computer uh, are better again and supported by uh, Google, Facebook, Dropbox, Microsoft. Uh, I think I think not Apple, but uh, a lot of other important services as well. Uh, each of those little keys costs uh, ten or twenty dollars. Uh, but if you think about the the massive inconvenience <laughs> that you'd face if your Google account uh, was uh, was hijacked, I think it's uh, well worth the money. The next important thing is uh, not to use the same password everywhere, uh, which you've probably been told before. But again, uh, <laughs> it's really important. Um, just passwords are kind of constantly leaked uh, and published online uh, in in these big databases. And if you're using the same password in many places at once, that means that uh, once one of those passwords gets out, uh, people can just break into all of those uh, relevant accounts uh, simultaneously. Uh, So to make that workable, uh, using these kind of uh, random different passwords for every service, uh, you'll need to use a password manager like uh, LastPass or uh, a 1Password. So if you've been considering doing that, uh, stop procrastinating and, and just go and set that up this week. The next most important thing is to really uh, be quickly installing software updates for macOS, uh, Windows, Android, uh, iPhone, Chrome, Firefox, and uh, other important software that you use. Most of these get a package of uh, urgent security fixes uh, once each month, uh, and you should be able to set them up to update automatically so you don't have to do anything, and (laughs) they'll get those updates within a day or two of them being released. If you want to protect yourself against the risk of uh, ransomware, uh, you can keep a full drive uh, backup uh, on an external hard drive that you plug in every so often and which syncs with your hard drive. I asked Bruce for other advice that I could suggest here, and he actually said uh, having antivirus on your your computer was a a good idea as well. Uh, I'd heard mixed reports about that because it uh, seems like uh, viruses specifically are a bit less common than they used to be. Uh, and apparently there's uh, some security weaknesses that you can uh, actually create by uh, by having uh, antivirus uh, software on a computer. Uh, but I guess I'd probably trust uh, Bruce's judgment over mine. Finally, it's important to learn to identify uh, phishing emails, uh, which can make it um, really surprisingly easy to break into just all of your accounts, even if you have a two-factor authentication uh, activated, uh, unless it's a, a UTF key. 
that's uh, phishing with a PH at the start. And you can uh, Google advice on, on how to identify and, and not get tricked by, by phishing emails anywhere online. Okay, I just wanted to comment on one other point that came up uh, during the interview, which I thought was a little bit important. Uh, I asked Bruce whether there were any differences between uh, cybersecurity and uh, biosecurity, which might make analogizing from one to the other a little bit dangerous. Uh, he said he suspected that there weren't, uh, but my colleague uh, Howie Lempel actually pointed out two of them uh, after listening to this episode. The first is that uh, once sec- software security flaws are made public, uh, we basically know how to patch them almost always, and this usually happens uh, very quickly. Uh, by contrast, if a new biological threat is made public, it's not clear that we will have any way to deal with it at all, uh, and certainly not, not to do so quickly. The second is that billions of dollars are spent by hackers already uh, looking for software vulnerabilities all the time, and they're very aggressive about doing that, uh, which means that most serious problems out there are found pretty quickly and uh, are likely already actually being exploited. But there's no similar way to make lots of money uh, finding a dangerous ways to use new biotechnology. Uh, So few people are actively really bothering to try to do that. This means that it's more plausible and more likely uh, for dangerous possibilities to uh, go unnoticed by anyone for years or possibly even decades, uh, which might well be a good thing. All right, it's a shame I wasn't fast enough on my feet to to raise those two uh, issues with Bruce, but I'm sure we'll have a chance to uh, revisit them with either either him or another guest in future. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris. Thanks for joining. Talk to you in a week or two.